This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Welcome to another edition of 41st episode. Good morning, sir. Afternoon, evening. Afternoon, everywhere we are around the world. You got all time zones covered. You say I know. It's the hottest show in the galaxy during the week, and now you just added the weekend. Man, I am so proud of of this audience, of this of this family, and the people from all over there dropping in, Poland, from England, from Jamaica. You know, we got folks in Germany right now, Switzerland. Uh, It's beautiful. Korea, Taiwan. Whoa, whoa. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a thing. It's a thing. So um, today I didn't realize, Doc, and I know we're going to talk about the Supreme Court. So I wanted to just kind of start off talking about um, the NABJ, uh, because my career, my career at the New York Daily News started after a lawsuit, which I didn't know when I got there. So we're going to be talking about lawsuits in the Supreme Court today in the courts. Uh, a, a court decision is the first time in the history of our country that a daily paper, and at the time, the New York Daily News was the largest circulating general daily newspaper in the country. They were sued by four black people and they lost. They went to court because usually those things get settled out of court because people aren't stupid enough to to actually (laughs) allow for something so ridiculous because the claims were ridiculous that the daily news had been accused of. And they were found guilty by a jury in 1987 for, and I want to say their names because when I got to the daily news, I had no clue. I had no clue that any of this had happened, that there was a lawsuit, that there was mistreatment. But my first week on the job, my, my direct superior said, you know, you're only here because you're black. And I was like, "Mm, no, I didn't know that. I thought I was excellent, but it, and I thank him to this day. I thank him for that because I was relatively, I was 21, 22, unconscious. It was 1988. I had, I was, you know, full of, you know, vigor and I was ready to hit the ground. I was like, I'm going to kill this. I'm going to smash it. I wasn't thinking about race. I'm like, oh, I'm in a sports department. I'm going to rise up on, you know, and this dude tells me, you know, you're only here because you're black. And that sent me on this journey. Mm -hmm. And, And it's something that you, you know, when I think about young people today questioning and challenging institutions and saying folks haven't done anything in 40, 50 years. Yes. I didn't know anything about an NABJ. I didn't know anything about the folks that had come before me. And I didn't care. More importantly, I didn't care. I didn't come in with a concern about. But what he did in that one sentence was sent me in. And sometimes white folk, y'all don't know what fire you're igniting. No question. I was an unconscious black woman in terms of like very ambitious, ready, ready to be a shark. And when he told me I was only there because I was black, I did two things. I shifted my entire view of what I was going to do there. So I was going to show him what, A, what black people can do. So it took me down a path to be like, I'm going to murder this every day because I'm going to show you. But then it made me reach out and start talking to all of the black people there to find out what happened. Because it wasn't, I didn't read the newspapers. And as a matter of fact, before I got on this broadcast today, I Google searched New York Daily News lawsuit. Nothing came up on Google, on Yahoo, all the search engines. I'm scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. I typed in New York Daily News racism lawsuit. Couldn't find it. I I typed in journalists sue New York Daily News on Google. Finally found an article after I had to scroll down about this 1987 conviction for racism. Uh, And I want to say the names of the four 
uh, plaintiffs, the four people that won the lawsuit, because they were there when I got there. So I got a chance to sit and talk with them. Wow. Joan Shepard, badass Joan Shepard, fabulous diva. She was on the cultural affairs desk. She was an editor, got to sit there and talk. And she, you know, and in many ways they groomed me because I wouldn't have gone on that journey. I wouldn't have pursued it if that white man hadn't told me, well, you know, you're only here because of that lawsuit. I was like, okay, I'm gonna find out what happened. No question. Coswell Vaughn, who was a copy editor, amazing, stately, black man, Stephen Duncan, who I didn't know as well. And David Hardy, who would walk around the Daily News like he had the biggest dick in the world. <laughs> and he probably did. Because I imagine, you know, at David that point, Hardy. David Hardy, they couldn't fire them after they lost the lawsuit. Right. And they, and they got a settlement. And they kept their job. So, you know. But you how, know. Did they, how did they treat them? At that point, with uh, kid gloves, you don't. <laughs> you, right. You better, you don't you better want leave, no more smoke. You better leave me alone. So then, but then they saw you with them. I don't know what they were thinking because I was still kind of like Pollyanna, thinking, you know, well, I'm I'm gathering information. I'm a journalist, you know. I, I need to know what happened. But you had you had the presence of mind to go sit with them, though. That's yeah. the, that's the key. Yeah. And, and all of them, you know, I had, and I, I just want to thank them because I would not be here today. I want to thank them for taking a lawsuit, but I'm bringing this up because the lawsuit initially started with like 12 Negroes. Oh boy. By the end, it was four. No question. And I came there. There was the first black, um, uh, columnist, Bob Herbert. Oh, of course. Who was part of the original lawsuit, but something happened along the way. Hmm. And Bob I, and I ended up at the New York Times. Yes. <laughs> Who was at the New York Daily News. He was the first black um, columnist. He was part of the original 12 or 14, however many it was to, to be a part of this lawsuit. And, you know, as I heard through the grapevine, but I'm saying this to say, you know, what you talk about all the time is our history. We have to tell the stories and we have to be, you know, present and we have to ask questions and we have to sit at the feet of elders because they will, we will never know because you can't Google search this so and find hear, out what happened. you hear a book in the offing, I'm assuming this is going to be in something in print. Oh, I, God, you I gotta tell need, this story. I mean, I don't need a, or your I, students, you might have to send somebody going to have to tell. Yeah. But you know, because if, because if it's not told, I mean, what you just walked us through in terms of having to root around just for an article on the trial. Right. And they didn't mention Bob Herbert was originally a part of the lawsuit. And they didn't mention that a deal was struck. And I think about that today, you know, and I want to say good morning and good afternoon and congratulations to Tiffany Cross, who, uh, yeah, who, who launched her show today, you know, and I, and I, I smiled at that because this is a woman who started like a newsletter, you know, she, she did journalism much the way Roland Martin is doing it much the way there's so many people show, no question. Yeah. Who, who are, you know, disenfranchised by the system, you know, and the people who bestow on you, who's good, who's not. And I think about that ironically, because she's come through now, <laughs> as I think about, you know, journalism and institutions, as we celebrate today, the founding of the NABJ, the National yes. Association of Black Journalists today, on this day yes. in 1975, 44 journalists got together oh. uh, at, at Sheridan Park Hotel, which is now the Marriott Wardman Park in D.C. 
to talk about, you know, some of the things that that for those four people, the four horsemen, the four folk that filed that lawsuit against New York Daily News have been talking about. And at that time, six, six percent of the newsroom uh, was black. Today is about four percent. So not much has changed. Right. Wow. So you look at journalism when we see, um, you know, Yamich and all of those people, you know, make you know, questioning uh, the president. You know, there's still very little representation in the newsrooms, which means our stories don't get told. And how many of those people in there will do a deal like Bob Herbert? I'm not disrespecting it. Listen, to be a columnist, to get that check, I'm not mad at anyone getting a check. I mean, Chuck Stone, I remember in Philadelphia, the late Chuck Stone, ancestor, I think he was a founder of NABJ. In fact, that history book, y'all did a one years ago. I got it over in the other room. Those, it takes a special kind of woman and man to say, you know what, I'm not just doing this for me. Yes. And this, this is what I'm Karen Hunters that are coming up after. That you don't even know. And the Tiffany Crosses. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. Chuck Stone of Tuskegee Airmen. How about first that? Pre- first president of NABJ, columnist for the Philadelphia Daily News. You talk about, right, understanding that, you know, we may be here because the, the country was on fire, much the way it is now. So white folks are like, mm, who are we going to send into Watts? Mm, who are we going to send into Newark? Mm, who are we going to send into How West Philadelphia? Who are we going to send in? White people can't go in there and get these stories. So they, they, you know, bestowed upon, you know, black folk. But those 44 that included um, Joel Dreyfus, who I actually didn't know, brother from Port-au-Prince, Haiti, yeah. uh, columnist from the Washington Post, Maureen Bunyan, who was a lead anchor, WUSA, 22 yes. years, WTOP in Washington, D.C. as well. Yes. The great Max Robinson. The great Max Chicago. Who well, you talked Chris about? Virginia. By Come on. <laughs> Dwayne Wickham, Baltimore Sun. Oh, Wickham's still at Morgan State. Yeah, he's founding there. dean of the School of Global Journalism in communication at Morgan State. And of course, uh, the great Les Payne was also there in 1970. This day. So, wow. you know, I think about that. And, and before I, you know, I'm going to hand over the baton. I know no, y'all. No, no, no. We're in a conversation. This is the beautiful thing about this because I hope y'all, everybody's writing notes because these are names to our breadcrumbs. Every one of those legends. But anyway, please, no, no, no. This is conversation. I was, I was thinking about Tiffany Cross today at MSNBC Universal. Um, and I remember being at MSNBC because I was a paid contributor there. I came in through Phil Griffin. And I remember Phil Griffin was accused of racism and stuff. You know, you NBC was accused of racism. I think every, you know, I, I talk about it. I came into an institution accused, not just convicted of racism. The New York Daily News. A lawsuit with a jury found guilty, right? I think about that. And I also think about institution at the same time, because I had very little respect for the NABJ when I got to the Daily News in 1988. I didn't get a job through them. And I found them by and large useless during my career. And I think about the the same way that young people are looking at the NAACP and the National Action Network and Rainbow Push, and they look at them as relatively useless with their hands out. A lot of them have gotten a lot of donations. They have gotten a seat at the table mm-hmm. to this Biden-Harris administration as if they represent Black people mm-hmm. wholesalely. And I, and I understand the challenges because I had the same challenges. I'm going to respect the founding 44, but I'm also going to say this is a time for us to challenge everybody that has a letter, <laughs> you know, an acronym no that is purportedly, you know, given a charge to take care of the Black community in various different ways. We need to hold them as equally as accountable as we hold Biden-Harris 
the Republicans or anybody else who has Absolutely. a seat of power in this country. And we can't give anyone a free pass because what happened at that, when I look at NBC, I see NBC Comcast, that deal that was made, that they, that was brokered by uh, NAACP, National National Network, Urban League. They were in the room and they gave coverage. They gave coverage to these folk, right? Which is, which is the objective. I mean, the objective of, of, the, of the companies. Now the question is, what 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 did quote unquote we get in return? That's the question. How did it free us? How do it free us? <laughs> not 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 how do it free the three people who got jobs? I mean, I'm sure. And so funny, I saw your social media. Everybody was laughing. Uh, the sister who's now the president of MSNBC. Her name. Rashida. Yes, Rashida Jones. Oh, oh, Quincy Jones' daughter. You yes. had me cracking up on it. I mean, but you know, she's there. And of course, they say you got Tilly Cross, you got uh, what's Jonathan Kipart, my brother. Yeah, who, who, yeah, I mean, what is the relationship of these earlier institutional formations to the fact that they're there, and how much of it is that pressure? I mean, it all works together. How much of it is the context of the times? I mean, you know, Biden Harris probably paves the way. It has at least as much impact on these hires, because again, I mean, they're they're in business. They want ratings, they want you know, which is why Trump is not going away, right? You know, they're going to follow Trump because Trump is good for ratings. Well, I, I need us to ask all of the questions because the thing that disturbed me most about you know these institutions, and again, you know, we. I watched um, Eiffel this morning and she said, you know, she was in a room. It was not a conversation. Oh, no. And, the and so, we heard on the intercept was not a conversation. It was Joe Biden being Joe Biden. Right. And, and Kamala Harris there reminding him as his memory slipped every three seconds, which was hilarious to me. We're going to talk about that, too. But, you know, those so she those, was there. What was she? Right. I, I didn't see that interview. What did she say? No, she was like, you know, he said what he said, but now it's our time to hold them accountable. And she's saying exactly what we, we got to ask the right questions. But more importantly, we have to demand the things that we want to see happen, because what came out of Comcast Universal's merger was that they put, set aside four, four um, networks that were going to ear, be earmarked for black people. And those institutions bestowed one on Magic Johnson. I don't remember us having a communal meeting, black people did. You know, Magic Johnson might be a great, you know, uh, steward of a of a channel, uh, and, and we got aspire out of that. They yeah. gave one to Puff Daddy, yeah, Revolt. which is Revolt, right. and there were two more Dr. Carr that never saw the light of day. So I wonder, would Lena Waite have done something with that? Would Misha Green have done something with one of those two? Would Ava DuVernay have done something with one of those two networks that were set aside so that that deal could say we've included black people? In, in this merger? Well, what, what's the objective? I mean- Listen, I mean, here's what came out of it. Four networks, one of the heads of the organizations got a TV show. Okay, right. And I'm gonna ask the question, how did it free us? And that's gotta be the question moving forward. And I thank you for bringing Sonia Sanchez in and I'm gonna oh, pop out. Always, always representing our sister, Birmingham by way of New York City, now uh, an adopted Philadelphian, still sitting in North, in Germantown area, North Philly. Sister Sonia, always, not all of five feet tall. Yeah, yeah but how do it free us? <laughs> but when, it, when, this is tough. Kendrick. I know. I mean, no, it's tough because the us, is 
is the us inclusive of these individuals? I mean, this is almost settled now in terms of argument that the small black elite, so to speak, relatively speaking, have been the greatest beneficiaries of mass movements of African people in every movement in this country since the end of enslavement. I mean, so it's always free. And in fact, before the end of enslavement, you had a few Negroes that could cut out a little space to operate. Again, you know, just quickly going to uh, 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 Catherine Frankie's book, uh, Repair. And not only that, there's another one, Lillian Smith in Pursuit of a Dream talks about this, that the, her whole book is about this. What happened to Davis Bend, uh, the plantation owned by Jefferson Davis's brother uh, and uh, Benjamin Davis and Isaiah Montgomery and the folks who were on that plantation during the Civil War, the end of the Civil War after Jeff Davis's brother fled, the enslaved Africans ran the plantation. And uh, Ben Davis had adopted a, a, a form of enslavement that he had begun to implement on that plantation in Mississippi. Uh, Hurricane was Jeff Davis's plantation. His brother's plantation was Davis Ben. And before the end of enslavement, before the Civil War, um, Ben Davis's idea, which he adopted after being in conversation with Iran, not even ironically, Iran is the wrong word, some British socialists who said, you know, the people work better when you give them a little bit of autonomy. So he basically had the enslaved Africans on his plantation with a nominal form of autonomy. They had a court, they called the slave court. The overseers, white overseers didn't like to work on at Davis Bend because they said black people walk around here like they free and we can't whip them. Why? Because the Davis told us that they have to adjudicate their own disputes. And honestly, this is before the end of enslavement. And so one of the enslaved Africans, as I say, Montgomery on that plantation, cut out a little room to operate. He ran a little store on the plantation. He was able to negotiate with Davis and in exchange for kind of doing supervision and making sure everybody did what they had to do and managing the affairs of the place. Uh, he was able to accrue some money, enough to buy his wife's labor time and his wife worked at the store. She wasn't in the field or in the house. I mean, this is before the end of enslavement. Then the, the Union Army comes in and they basically say, OK, we want you all to continue to run this plantation and grow these crops. And we'll use the crops to help fund the war effort down here. And in exchange, you all keep doing what y'all were doing before without the whipping and all this kind of stuff. And they turn the slave court into a freedman's court and they just keep going. I mean, and what you then begin to see emerge very interesting. There, there, there are very few records that survive of any of the cases that were held. But there was one case that Catherine Frankie notes where there was a, um, a woman and her son who were accused of stealing some corn or a pig or something like that. So they brought them before the tribunal. And one of the uh, formerly enslaved Africans, this is around 1862, 1863. So this is during the Civil War, the plantation has been liberated. And this judge, who is also an enslaved African, formerly enslaved African, looks at this uh, mother and son and says, see, you're the kind of black people that make it hard for the rest of us. So we, you know, you need to get your life together. And he, he gives them this whole lecture. It's almost like a politics of respectability in 1862. <laughs> so I'm saying I have to say that there's always been this, uh, this class division, just like in any human society, that has existed among even enslaved Africans in some ways. But what held us together 
in some ways was Jim Crow, you know, was, was the common thrust of getting out. This is why Michael Gomez's book, uh, I mean, there are a lot of, lot of writings on this, but I recommend among others, just for a quick gloss of how it works, at least an allusion to it, Michael Gomez's book, Exchanging Our Country Marks, where he talks about, he follows enslaved Africans from the periods when we are being brought into this uh, settler colony and beginning to uh, re-blend our identities, to borrow some language from scholars like Gwendolyn Midlow Hall and others, uh, you know, the Bambara, the Yoruba, you know, the Efik, the Congo, the Ashantis, you know, the Igbo, coming here as with an identity in the trauma of enslavement being forced to uh, relinquish some of that identity in pursuit of a larger concept of blackness, a beautiful fictional rendering of this that's informed by years of study is by my dear brother Daniel Black down at Clark Atlanta University. He wrote a little novel that I recommend to everyone. It's very inexpensive. You get it. It'll make you weep from the first paragraph. It's called The Coming. He kind of narrates this in a way through journeying. And in fact, he takes that, uh, that, that title of his book, The Coming, from Sonia Sanchez, who did a poem. You know, it, it, it was the coming that was bad. It was the coming that was bad. It was the whipping, it was the whipping that was bad. It was the screams, it was the screams that were bad. It was the, and she just, you know, in her, in her, in her signature rhythmic style. So he took that line out, it was the coming that was bad. And he talks about the coming. But what they did was they began to blend and reblend those identities. And so what you then see is, and Michael Gomez trace, traces this through studying several national groups, Mumbara people, uh, Igbo people. He goes to different regions, New Orleans, South Carolina. He kind of traces how they began to exchange Muslims, for example, in South Carolina who uh, continue to practice Islam. But when they are forced to adopt Christianity, they simply hide the Islam under the Christianity, as we've talked about before. I think I mentioned that. You know, so all folks listening who when y'all go to old church folk and they start singing, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. Oh, Lord, have mercy on me. When I fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun, oh Lord, have mercy on me. I know we used to sing that at Can't Avenue Baptist Church in Nashville, Tennessee. When I fall on my knees with my face to the rising sun, it's the opening, it's the opening salat, it's the opening prayer of the Muslims, but they were forced to become Christians, so they just hid, hid the Islam under Christianity. My point is, you talk about these class division, class which is present even then. One of the reasons why, for example, Gomez uh, theorizes that uh, some, some enslavers preferred, some captors in preferred Muslims was because they saw the Muslims as closer to being Christians like they were. People of the book, the Quran, people say, so said, we enslaved some of them. We, they can make them maybe overseers or have them in the house. It was crazy how you see even class things struggling to be born during enslavement. But what happens is after the end of enslavement, the we, you know, it's clear to it's clear how do we free us before the end of enslavement? Because free us means literally get these chains off me. But after that, these four million Africans in the South in particular, and their uh their family in the north, family writ large, broadly speaking, black people, once that common effort to break the chains of enslavement is over. Now the debate begins on what do we do? And, you know, the betrayal of reconstruction, this kind of thing. But that small black elite is going to emerge with a sense of obligation to the rest of us. The HBCUs, the idea of black business, these black people we've been talking about now for the better part now, 40 some every time we talk about Durham, we talk about Tulsa, we talk about these are black people, Memphis, the churches, you know, 
we're going to do something, but we have to do something for everybody, but we got to get something to do something. But that sensibility is still close enough to the lash to not be debatable. In other words, we remember the oppression, but that's very different than today. Oh, it's muted. Okay. Yeah. Still. Everybody. Okay, I'm muted. You know, is it is it is it class? Because when I think about the 44 black um, journalists in 1975, they they were all gainfully employed. They worked for major newspapers. I think about Harry Belafonte, very wealthy. You know, I think about Ida B. Wells and W. B. Du Bois and Fred, people who you know those are closer to the lash. But as we get further, they've been people. How do we hold accountable the groups? Because once the money starts coming in. Once the opportunities, all right, so you you think about the civil rights leader who was offered a TV show and he took it. And you think like, how does that fall in line? Well, I can hold people more accountable on this platform. Can you really, when you're getting a check from the people that you need to hold accountable and then you you feet and you, you celebrate the very colonizer or the racist and, and give them coverage, you know, like, how does that work for us? And then what do we do about it? Because we sit and I'm celebrating. I'm celebrating Rashida Jones. I'm celebrating Tiffany Cross and Joanne Reed and J Jonathan Capehart, all the black people that are, you know, Laura Coates is, you know, doing stuff and Abby Phillips. And, you know, there are a lot of black folk in these spaces and I'm proud and I'm happy. But at the same time, it's almost as if they know and it's not classing because I know some of these people have humble beginnings. It's the dangling of the the carrot. Right. And 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 who among us, if offered, hey, I'm gonna give you a million dollars and a prime time spot, <laughs> you think in your mind, I'm gonna get there because I again, I struggled with this. If that white man hadn't said to me that phrase, I might have been compromisable. But he pissed me off to a point <laughs> where I was no, like, I would have broke it something. Happened. It would if if not that moment, it would have been another moment because that was in you. Okay. I'm, a, I'm a firm believer. Something's got to be in you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's a reason why the people we see in positions and first of all, we, as we've said many times, we've had this conversation many times, individuals don't beat institutions. So there are certain individuals who there's certain types. I'm going to say individuals. I'll make this personal. There's certain types that can are more easily cultivated. I'm, I'm asking this question because we sit here on the precipice and you're going to tell us about the Supreme court debacle oh, we talk in about a minute. Yeah. We're going to talk about, it. but, but we sit here on the precipice of another administration, yeah. another, uh, you know, opportunity for us to not waste what we did with Obama, you know, but in standing in the way of that are people vying for position, you know, vying for attention, vying for individual something. And, and they're going to get it. They're going to get it. Sure. At our expense. And I say our because I could easily, you know, I could easily tap dance over there. It's no problem for me. Oh, of course. But every day I have so you to. You just answered the question you asked a minute ago about which one of us would turn away from the dangle. Oh, yeah. I, 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 you would. <laughs> it's rare. Okay. All right. We're going to. Maybe, 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 or maybe not. What do I mean by that? I mean, this is a case in point. What started as a conversation between friends, and remember, this is so funny, almost exactly a year ago, a year ago, a couple of weeks ago, between the two of us. And in, in fact, I think maybe was that, was it that first time we sitting there talking when we were talking about the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and Byron Allen, who 
rode the race into a negotiated settlement for himself. <laughs> I mean, which, which is fine. Hey, this is the way America works, but it don't free us, bro. <laughs> I mean, and in a moment of, you can call it conscious, you can call it, uh, uh, you can call it awareness. You know, Diddy, who did get one of those channels, as you said, when Comcast reached out to him, he said, no, nah, man, don't use me. Mm -mm, don't use me as no example with By Byron Allen. So even in that moment, Diddy, when he could have said, well, this could benefit me. At least what you right. hear is an right. echo of how do we free us? Now you ain't gonna use me, but then Allen risks it all. And by it all, I mean the law that was passed. The 13th Amendment was passed in 1865. I've seen the Lincoln's handwritten notes on the original draft of the 13th Amendment because they had it on display at the New York Historical Society a few years ago. And uh, so the, the, the draft of the 13th Amendment existed before Lincoln got his brains blown out in April 1965, uh, 1865. It is passed in 1865. Then the South immediately starts trying to pass laws to mess with Black people. That's what they do. So then the Congress they passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866 almost as a, a kind of moment moment to say, stop. Civil Rights Act of 1866 basically says that Black people have the right to make and enforce contracts. They have the right to do all these things as, if, as the same as a white person. In fact, that's the language of it. It changes later in terms of interpretation. But people, we, we think about the 14th Amendment, which then is proposed in 1866 and ratified by 1868. And then the 15th Amendment, the voting amendment, which comes after that, we think about 13, 14, and 15, but between 13 and 14, which is due process and equal protection, the citizenship amendment, which is the one, by the way, Texas tried to use in this case that got thrown out yesterday, ironically, not ironically, we'll talk about that. Between 13 and 14 is the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is kind of like a, a stopgap measure to the 14th. But here's the thing. When the 14th Amendment is ratified and it, the, the states, in order to be admitted back into the Union, they had to ratify the 14th Amendment. It ain't like they wanted to, those rebellious states. But the 14th Amendment, after it's ratified, does not replace the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is still in the books, still a good law, which is what Byron Allen used to make the argument that Comcast is discriminated against me in terms of race, basically they are impinging on my right to make an enforced contrast and they're doing it because I'm black. Now Byron Allen is screaming, I'm black, I'm black, I'm black, but the key, uh, <laughs> the key pronoun there is I. Because are these networks benefiting us? Are you hiring black interns? Are you putting black talent on the air? Are you using it as a conduit for black people to get training and then cycle back out and build our own media stuff? No, you, you're saying I, when you see me, to corrupt and misuse a phrase by a sister from North Carolina whose grave I've stood at uh, several times, right? Buried right near uh, uh, Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina, to, to corrupt her phrase, when and where I enter, that's Anna, Anna Julia Cooper, when and where I enter, the race enters with me. This is the attitude of some in the black elite. So when you see me, you see us. How do we free us? I got a job. Wait, stop. <laughs> because I don't understand. Just like those four, well, I'm sorry. Just like those 12 went into the breach and four after the fire hit them 
the four ended up like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You put them in the furnace and you open the furnace and there wasn't three no more. It was four. And the other one looked like the son of God. Meaning what? Them Negroes stood in the fire so that when Karen Hunter got hired, not through the black network, but got there, it's like, come here, sis. What? What's going to be? Let me tell y'all about this. Oh, wow. And then what do you do? You begin to say, how can I put other people on? How can? Because when you say when and where I enter, you're looking for the way to get somebody else on. Or more importantly, at least, at least equally importantly, how can I get more people in this space to get the skills we need so that we can build something to not only compete, but to win? That's a different mentality. But is that I, you see, and, and, and I think that's 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 where we have the challenge because uh, this, well, I'll say this finally, and then we, we keep conversation. The individuals who emerge after the Civil War, and this is this is why I was thinking about this a lot. We say, why do we study the past? There are three, there are three things that came to mind when I thought about it. One is we're looking for best practices. What things can we learn from what we've done before that we can adapt to now? The second of the three is to enhance our vision. In other words, what do we want? Who is we? What do we want? And then the third thing, there may be more than three things, but these things came to mind, is to recognize patterns. In other words, have we seen this before? And then to make adjustments for time and space. And the question we ask is, can we see a thing up close and from a distance at the same time? Because our lives depend on being able to do both those things. So when we see uh, Derek Johnson and Sherilyn Eiffel, we see NAACP Urban League, NAACP LDL, all meeting with uh, Biden and Harris. We can't just look at that as, okay, this is December 2020. No, you've seen it up close. Now let's back up. Mm-hmm. What happened when A. Philip Randolph and Anna Hedgeman was in there with uh, with FDR and them? What happened when Monroe Trotter and them went and confronted Woodrow Wilson? What happened when Frederick Douglass was talking? In other words, can you see this thing up close and at a distance at the same time? Because you should by now be able to recognize the pattern. But if you think this is unique to you, we're going to take another L. You can't see the pattern. And, and I only bring it up, and I know my mic is uh, loud because I actually have a mic. And Dr. Carr, we got to get you a mic because people keep complaining about really? things that you and I can't control right now. But so they I'll either figure it out. Head. That's all right. Figure That's it out. Turn it up or turn it down. I only bring it up. First of all, I like the civil rights leader that I'm talking about personally. So this is not personal. Not personal. I'm asking the question about how we hold those folk accountable because- Listen, I mean, it's nice to be invited to the parties, to to the Super Bowl parties, to the the inauguration, to be, you know, in close proximity to power. It's nice to have television shows. Trust me, I've had them. You know, I've been there, done that. It's nice to have outlets of of access to people. It is it is personally great. And and you can delude yourself into thinking you're doing it for us. Oh, sure you can. So but I'm asking a question in 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 honor of the great Stephen Jackson. (laughs) the NBA basketball player All the smoke. <laughs> who held uh, our brother James Harden to account for his behavior. I think it's time for us to no longer be silent with respect. Uh, Steven Jackson has a particular style, but I think we should put people on notice. If you're going to be in those rooms and you're going to make these individual deals, we're going to say something about it. We're no longer going to just be okay with it because that's been the pattern, you know, for 40 years. We just, we're going to you know, privately talk about who don't represent us. 
Right. And then do nothing when every time they parade the same people out or have the same. How would they know who to come to if we haven't determined that this this doesn't represent us just because it's an organization that has Negro or colored in it? Right. Well, the ones, giving you, them well the ones you named are right. not, were not started by black people. So, so I mean, that, I mean, that NAACP was not started by black people. I mean, you, in the wake of the Springfield race riots of 1908, Henry White Moskowitz, um, Mary White, I'm sorry, Henry Moskowitz, Mary White Ovington, uh, William Walling, Oswald Garrison Billard, whose grandfather uh, was, you know, started the Liberator newspaper. Um, they start. They made an appeal, and they met up in New York. This committee of forty, so to speak, and we talked about that. For those of you who want to go back and look at our conversation we had about Ida Bell Wells Barnett, one of those early conversations. That might have been the first one. I'm trying to remember. We are, uh, you know, they, they, you know, Mary White Ovington keeps her off the uh, the list of the founders at the first meeting, and she writes about that in her book Crusader for Justice. Ida Bell Wells does. I mean, Du Bois kind of assented to it, which he, he complicit in that, but it was some of these other white cats that was like, you can't keep out of Bell Wells out. But my point is that that was the NAACP started as a white organization. Du Bois was the only member of the executive board at the beginning who was black. And he got the crisis magazine and blacked it up so much over the years of its publication when he was the editor that started, the NAACP founded in 1909, 1910, the crisis comes out. Black people all over the country are joining these local chapters at branches. You know, the crisis is black as hell. He, he he understands the value of propaganda by then. But I'm bringing that up. National Urban League comes shortly thereafter. Black people are migrating to the north. You know, I mean, and again, this is how this is beautiful, how all these things, these conversations are all part of an organic whole. Go back and find the conversation that we had. Those of you who are watching who haven't seen it on Whitney Young out of Kentucky. His father was at a black school, you know, black prep school, this kind of thing. Whitney Young inherits the NAACP in part. I'm sorry, the Urban League, the Urban League was never meant to be a kind of pushing front movement organization. It's, it's employment, it's getting people jobs, job training, especially when they're migrating north, this kind of thing. But they, you know, oh, I'm sorry, I should add one other thing. The black, small black elite at the time did have another organization, the Niagara Movement. With, with they had started in part, this is just before the, uh, it's like 1905, 1906, they began meeting. This is Du Bois and a few other folks who are meeting to try, how can we provide leadership for the race? The assumption is that the schooled, the educated, these folks are going to ultimately be leaders. Why? Well, we have education, you know, we got training, but that's an assumption that we've always made that we probably need to revisit because what you see is while they're meeting and, and absolutely committed to the race at the, early, at the beginning of the uh, 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century, you've got the vast majority of black people who are not going to college, who are, who are trapped in debt peonage in the South, who are hard laboring in the North as they're migrating. And those people, when they are organized, are organized in groups like the Prince Hall Masons and for the, you know, the Order of Eastern Star, some of the groups we were talking about last week, we started talking about these, these, these fraternal and sorority organizations, mutual aid societies. They're not really connected to this black elite. There's always been this tension. Cedric Robinson explores it. You know, there's a little book he published called Black Movements in America, published it in 1997, which talks about the fact that after the Civil War in the last quarter of the 20th century, uh, 19th century, the 1870s, 80s, 90s, you see this kind of emerging of two alternative black traditions, so to speak. You've got that kind of assimilationist strain, and this is most of the people that we see in the books, the Du Boises and others, who are saying, 
you know, we're militant, we're new Negroes, we want to advance the race, but we're doing it by negotiating with white power and we're going to advance the interests of everyone. Then uh, Robinson says the other strain is the vast majority of our people. They are separatist in sensibility, not, you know, separatist in the sense of the white man's the devil. No, leave us alone. We're going to build, we're going to get us some land, we're going to put some stuff together. Uh, you know, we, we, you know, they connect it to a di different moral, it's, Robinson would say it's a different ethical and even moral standard. For those people who are the vast majority of our people, Senator Robinson has said, you know, their sensibility is our ethic, he calls it Afro-Christian, but it's really a kind of a, a deeply spiritual ethic that says, if we see you, we assume you're negotiating for us. And if you're not negotiating for us, we withdraw our support for you. Jim Crow, however, keeps them tightly packed. When you see that turn, and the debates are within the black community. So between 1909, when the NAACP is formed, and the 1930s, after the Depression, you've got a proliferation of other groups, black-led groups, now more urban groups. You've got April Randolph, who organizes the sleeping car porters and chambermaids in 1925. He's an open socialist. We probably call him a democratic socialist today. And, but 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 he said these are the people and the Pullman porters. Hell, the Pullman porters might be the most. In fact, oh my goodness, I wish I could find this book called Rising from the Rails. Larry Ty T Y E talks about the history of the Pullman porters and the Pullman porters. You know, it may be the most important. And the chambermaids, the women and men who work on those railroads. You know, they're bringing the, the, the they're the network. They're delivering the Chicago Defender through Mississippi and all the places when the when the train leaves Chicago. They're the network raising money. Hell, E.D. Nixon, who we talked about, Rosa Parks, is a Pullman porter. I mean, th this is the this is getting down in the class structure, and they're respected in the communities, these folks. So I'm saying all that to say that by the time you get to the 1930s in the United States, you've got these other organizations that have also begun to emerge that are tapping into that larger pool. One more I'll mention, and we probably should devote a whole conversation to this at one point, is the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League of the World. That's Marcus Garvey. That is Amy Jakes Garvey. And before her, Amy Ashwood Garvey. In fact, we should pause here and note that a couple of days ago, 90 years old, uh, uh, had been kind of uh, in kind of withdrawn from public life for the last probably decade or more. Um, Marcus Garvey Jr. just made transition a couple of days ago. His brother Julius is still in New York. I know Julius, in fact, um, you know, he's fighting for a pardon still for him, for his father. Barack Obama could have done it, but, you know, we're going to add that to the list of L's. But uh, we don't care. We say he didn't do nothing wrong, but the sons want a pardon for their father. Marcus Garvey Jr. just passed away. He's 90 years old. Just So that's how close in time this history is. But the UNIA is not tapping into the black elite like that, although they do have some incredibly accomplished people in the UNI. Hell, Ida B. Wells writing saying, get your black baby dolls from the Negro doll factory. So she's sympathetic to the UNI. Du Bois, begrudgingly, later in life, is like, well, Garvey, you know, I, I, I was used against Garvey. But now I see some of the things he was saying, you know, perhaps they had some, some function. But at the time when Garvey comes to the United States, 1916, the guy he's looking for is Booker T. Washington, who had died the year before, because he said Washington is talking about black people owning stuff, working, but, but Garvey's sensibility is different than Booker Washington's sensibility. Washington's whole argument against those black elite was, yeah, that's all nice and good, but black people here ain't never leaving the farm. So let me be very clear. We got to advance all of them. Now, Washington had two or three or five or 10 or 15 faces. 
You read uh, Lewis Harlan's two-volume biography on Booker T. Washington or the 14-volume Booker T. Washington papers, you see this guy's negotiating on every side of the issue, but he is saying we got to uplift the race. So when he establishes Tuskegee, what does he do? He goes and gets these few black people that got advanced training to come be on the faculty. Probably none more important than the young cat out of Missouri who went to Iowa State, chemist who comes to Tuskegee, never been south before in his life, George Washington Carver, who says, these black farmers, I'm going to show y'all some tricks. Watch this. Boom, boom, boom. Look at that crop yield. Now get out there. Start where you are. Man, how did you do that? I'm a scientist, bro. And I'm never leaving you in the field alone again. And But that's a different kind of commitment of sens sensibility. So by the time you get to the 30s, you have the Garvey movement. Garvey is deported, arrested, convicted of mail fraud, feds used the courts against him in 1927. They put him out of the country after a couple of years in Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. But the Garvey movement leaves a sensibility that continues in groups like the Nation of Islam. Elijah Poole, um, Elijah Muhammad, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and his uh, and his wife Clara coming out of, uh, they came off Sandersville, Georgia, where Elijah was born, but Detroit, then Chicago, they began to, to tap into that same common sensibility, that, that vast pool of black people, the kind of separatist agenda, not separatist in terms of white hate, but separatist in terms of let us build a foundation for ourselves. But see, Jim Crow is making that possible in some ways, because whether it be Robert Van and the Pittsburgh Courier, whether it be Robert Abbott and the Chicago Defender, whether it be by the early 1940s, John H. Johnson and Jet and Ebony and then Johnson Publications, Jim Crow is creating a market for a black elite that is literally in step with the black masses because they advance common. Their common advancement is taking place. But within that group, there's fighting. So by the time you get to the 1930s, Du Bois, is who is considered by some of the youngsters, you know, E. Franklin Frazier, Ralph Bunch in some ways and others, as being a little slow <laughs> to step on certain things, gets put out the NAACP. Because he's saying, well, if we're going to be separate for the foreseeable future. Let's build up these black separate institutions until we can kind of fortify them. And then as we move forward, they're like, nah, we are integrationists. We don't deal. What, 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 what just happened? <laughs> he gets put out, you understand? And then by the time you, but A. Philip Randolph, as we talked about before, you know, A. Philip Randolph by the 1940s, he's challenging for jobs and he's doing it on the idea that I'm coming out of organized labor. See, the labor strain is something we have to spend a lot more time on because these people are trying to build a momentum moving together. But to your point, the institutions in this country, which are white institutions, are looking for the black people to negotiate with part of the black elite with the objective of maintaining power. Now we can read and you know go through the rose-colored glasses and say this is about America improving itself. And yes, there was racism, but ultimately, you know, the racism harms the whole economy. So therefore, these people, yes, some of them may have been racist, but they were looking for a way to keep the country yeah, shut up. The black people they couldn't deal with, they got rid of. Look at the Garvey movement. The black people they couldn't get rid of, they surveilled the hell out of them and waited for their chance, which is why. J. Edgar Hoover called A. Philip Randolph the most dangerous Negro in America in 1925 because he's an open socialist and he's even saying, I don't even know about World War I where well, you should have been fighting them damn Germans because the racists here in the United States. So we got to keep a tab on him. The first counterintelligence program was called Raycon, Racial Conditions. Uh, Robert Hill, Bobby Hill edited a whole volume of these surveillance papers, which go back to the 1920s. So, you know, but so the people they couldn't, the people that were really a threat to them, this, this white structures, they got rid of. No different than today. The people they couldn't get rid of, they kept an eye on. And the people who would negotiate with them, 
they negotiated with them and then made them the leaders. So this is what I'm going to invite to the White House. I'm never inviting Elijah Muhammad to the White House. I got to invite Ephraim Randolph to the White House, but I like inviting Roy Wilkins into the conversation. Why? Because Roy, he's, you know, so me, and that's why ultimately maybe next week we'll, we'll finally talk about Anna Arnold Hedgeman. She's a sister who's walking in all these worlds. That's what makes her so fascinating to me. She's got a hand in all these conversations, well, many of these conversations in one way or the other. And so she's thinking about how do we advance as a group? And, and she is practicing something we need more of today. Again, those three things I talked about, best practices, enhancing vision, recognizing patterns. One of the patterns we can recognize is operational unity or unity without uniformity, which was a great phrase that you saw the Black nationalists and Pan-Africanists use in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. People like Amiri Baraka, Malana Karinga, so many others saying, you know, with unity without uniformity. Anna Hedgeman has a gloss of that. We got to come together and keep moving. But the Black elite are cherry-picked for those who the white structures can tolerate. We like Whitney Young. Whitney Young is about jobs. Whitney Young's ain't here but just rah-rah stuff. That don't mean Whitney Young is a sellout. It's just that that personality type, that's something we can kind of negotiate with. But it doesn't work. What Young is trying to do, which is, you know, expand opportunities for all Black people, it doesn't work without these Negroes we can't tolerate. We haven't killed, figured out a way to kill yet. And we can't put them out of the country yet. Out there, always threatening and putting the pressure on. Now, I mean, this isn't, you know, I see what we want to talk about today, but let, let, let me let me fast forward to that room that our brothers and sisters were in with Biden-Harris. You take a cat like Derrick Johnson, a friend Derrick Johnson, out of Mississippi, president of the NLACP. You know, the NLACP has had, again, patterns. These patterns of tensions between the masses of Black people, I won't say the masses because it's almost that, that label is too, too vague large clusters of black folk who are beyond the black elite who come into the organization with their own ideas and sensibilities think mega evers the tension between mega evers in mississippi and um roy wilkins there was tension before evers was killed and then basically becomes a saint it's beatified you look right next door or near next door two states over in georgia you got vernon jordan who knew mega evers vernon jordan is like yeah mega evers you know, they wanted me to do what Mega Evers is doing in, in, in Mississippi, but you know why? Because Vernon Jordan is thinking, I'll get it done this other way. Mega Evers is like, look, we got to move. And I understand y'all nonviolent, but I'm going to keep my shotgun and my car. Was in. But anyway, I'm saying those tensions were always there. You see it emerge again in the 1980s and 90s when Ben Chavis, Ben Chavis Muhammad, talk about NMPA, National uh, Negro, you know, Press Association. You know, Chavis, who becomes for a time Ben Chavis Muhammad when he joins the Nation of Islam, Chavis becomes the head of the NAACP. I remember this when he came to Detroit to meet with the black nationalists, the RNA and all the old, oh man, man, those stories, man. I remember that. I'm thinking about Conrad Rell, our new recent ancestor. I'm sitting there listening to Conrad talk about that because they, they trying to figure out how they can come together. Then he goes out to LA. I'm going to meet with the Crips and the Bloods. Let's go over Jim Brown house. See if we can. Then my CP losing their mind. What do he say? Hold on, man. Are we going to be for us? Are we going to be for a few jobs and some internships and go to court a couple of times? No. And I'm saying, all that is all, those tensions have always been there, even in MBCP Legal Defense Fund. I remember after my second year in law school, I clerked in New York at the MBCP Legal Defense Fund. Cheryl Eiffel, my friend Cheryl Eiffel, she was a staff attorney, a young staff attorney. This was 1989. And I was a clerk at the MBCP Defense Fund. Julius Chambers was the executive director of the MBCP uh, Legal Defense Fund, the job Sherilyn has now. Julius Chambers is a legend. 
He was a young attorney in North Carolina. He's the one who argued Swan versus Charlotte Metherberg, the desegregation case in North Carolina. I remember sitting in Julius Chambers' office and asking him, where is this integration, this hell-bent integration agenda taking us, uh, Baba Chambers? I'm asking you as a young man who was thinking about practicing law, I'm in my second year of law school, I went to law school to do civil rights law, and that was part of the reason that I made up my mind not to practice civil rights law, not to practice law, because I said, you know, these grounds are constantly shifting and you've committed to an ideology that I think is a tactical, it's a tactical error not to make adjustments. Again, what is your vision? Have you recognized the patterns? And what are the best practices? And I had and will always have the utmost respect for Julius Chambers. The man's a legend. At the same time, we have to be able to see a thing up close and see a thing from a distance at the same time. If the Because Julius Chambers is not Derek Bell, who was also a lawyer, a staff attorney for NACP. And so all these tensions are there. So let me, let me wind this together. So when you come in that room last week, you've got, and it's interesting, isn't it? How these organizations, which go back now over a century, some of them, have been labeled because of another pattern of perpetual push from youth alongside and commingle with that perpetual push from the non-elite in the black community, which is the vast majority. You know, it's interesting because in this latest wave of push, what do we see? These organizations have somehow acquired the label legacy, legacy civil rights organizations. NAACP is a legacy civil rights organization. The Urban League is a legacy uh, civil rights organization. What does that mean? That means that they did the earlier stuff. Oh, that's interesting. And what are you? Well, we are the new civil rights movement. Okay, what is that? Well, we're Black Lives Matter, the movement for Black Lives. We're the new. And we, we you know, we, we want to talk with them, but we got to do things differently. And then I sit back and I ask myself, hmm, what's the debate between new Harvard and old Harvard? New Council on Foreign Relations and old Council on Foreign Relations. Here's a pattern I recognize. Every time a different political party wins the White House, they go back and get the people from the previous time they were in the White House. That's called being able to recognize uh, best practices, a vision, and recognize patterns. You, however, seem to turn around and punch your elders in the face, even if they were who you were. Look at John Lewis. <laughs> John Lewis was outside throwing rocks in 63 when they brought him up, the youngest speaker on the march in Washington. He ends up standing next to Jim Clyburn saying, well, you know, yeah, I'm for Black Lives Matter. I'm all for that. Then Clyburn is like, yeah, but you know, they're going a little far. Bruh, your roots go back to Orangeburg. Remember them sit-in movements? Okay, everybody ages. Why do I bring that up? Jim Clyburn, who delivers the primary for Joe Biden. People want to credit him with that. I mean, it's complicated, but I think there's enough truth in there to say that. Jim Clyburn walks in. Biden won. Hey, thanks, Jim. I'll see you. Jim, wait, ho. You, you owe me. Oh, yeah, that's right. I guess I support some Negroes. And I want Marsha Fudge to be Secretary of Agriculture. Now we're going to give her what we usually give Negroes, which is when the alphabet, uh, HUD. HUD's good for her. Clyburn's sitting there with all kind of egg on his face. Got rocks in his jaws, but he can't say nothing. Why? He trapped. So now you got to put lipstick on a pig. Well, yes, and there'll be more blacks. I'm satisfied. Are you satisfied? Because in that meeting you're talking about, finally, Karen, Derek Johnson brought up Shirley Sherrod. See, because when you go put Tom Bilzak in, that's white institutions saying, and people say, well, what about Obama? Yeah. You don't care. You put Obama is just a label. It's a label for a party, a label for institution. They're putting the old gang back in together. So don't look at Susan Rice and say oh, Obama administration. No, look, think Democratic Party. Think the 
the structure. So Tom Bill's at, yeah, he's going to be the Secretary of Agriculture. Derek Johnson says, I got to speak for us on that one. Hold on, sir. Look here, man. Some of us know Shirley Sherrod. And if y'all want to know about Shirley Sherrod, you can read her autobiography, The Courage to Hope. She published it in 2012, two years after she was fired. And the first chapter in that book is called The White House Wants You Out. July 19, 2010, Shirley Sherrod got a call when she was da going down the highway in rural Georgia. And she got a call and they told her on her Blackberry issued by the USDA because she was working in southwest Georgia as a coordinator down there. They told her uh, the White House wants you to type your Blackberry, use your Blackberry, pull over on the side of the road, type your resignation to uh, from this administration. And she said, what? Are you serious? She said, no, because she got the call. She said, I was expecting the call because Andrew Breitbart, who is dead. He wasn't dead then. I won't call him an ancestor because if he is on the other side, I'm sure Breonna Taylor and him is dusting him up as, as we speak. But if there's enough of him left to dust up. But at any rate, he was on this side during that time. And he had doctored a tape from a talk she had gave to the Coffee County NAACP about a white farmer named Robert Spooner. She had helped him in 1986 keep his family farm. But he had, but Breitbart had spliced the thing up to make it sound like she was being racist. It was the exact opposite. And when Spooner found out, who was an old man, in fact, she writes about it in the book. She says, when, when, when the Spooner family found out that I had to resign and they tried to lay off on me that I was a racist and the reason that the White House told me to pull over, she said, I got a call from the White House. Vilzak fired me. Tom Vilzak. And she said, I heard that Vilzak cried when he found out what he had done. I don't know about that, but I know this. They called me to pull over on the side of the road, and I called my husband, Charles Sherrod. Charles and Shirley Sherrod are legends in the civil rights movement, going back to the days of SNCC. In fact, get this book, Hands on the Freedom Plow, on all the black, all many of the women, personal accounts by women in SNCC, and talk about Charles Sherrod. Shirley Sherrod, read her autobiography, but I'm bringing all, I'll bring all this together right now. So what you see is, she, she says, what the hell? This is a two-lane, ain't no really curb. I might get hit by a truck. No, you got to pull over. You got to pull over. She pulls over, types a resignation. The S hits the fan. Now CNN, everybody want to interview her. She gets home. She looks outside. All the trucks out there, New York Times, all the broadcasters. What happened? What happened? You've been fired. Blah, 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 blah. The truth comes. Even the NAACP comes out against her. Then the truth comes out. The tape comes out. She thought the call she was getting was a call from the White House to strategize on how to fight back. But no. You know what the lady told her on the call? Said, well, we heard that Glenn Beck is going to make you the lead story tonight, so we need you to resign right now. Oh, y'all going to make me resign off of Glenn Beck? You know how many years I got in this game? I got decades down here. This is my reputation. She writes about it. I mean, you know, it's kind of thing. So anyway, they make her resign. Then the truth comes out. Ben Jealous calls the house. I'm so sorry. I, uh, we're going to put out a statement. May I read it to you? She says, yeah. We made a mistake. We rushed the judgment, blah, blah, blah. I said, okay. Bill's huh. that. Uh, oh, she's like, hey. Then, call from the White House. She's in Atlanta now. She's giving interviews. She's all over the media. You remember this, Karen. I know you do. Because she says, uh, uh, the president wants uh, you to hold for a call. She in the car. Obama calls. Uh, hey. Uh, mm -hmm. She said, I was being cool. He said, you know, I'm, I'm not for this kind of thing. I'm sorry. He, no, he didn't say I'm sorry. He's trying to explain. He said, if you read my book, you know, I don't stand for this kind of thing. She writes in her in her, in her her memoir. She said, I listened to him. I had already read his book. And I said to him, Mr. President, 
you know, your experience is not my experience. I'm black from the rural South. Maybe you should come down here sometime. And he says, oh yeah, Sanford Bishop, Cosby Bishop's always telling me I should come down here. He hadn't come by the time she wrote her book. And then maybe he's down there campaigning now for these Senate seats, which is where I'm going with this at the end. She says, uh, well, I wish you'd do that, you know, but, and he says, well, you know, we'd like to offer you a job, maybe dealing with race and USDA as the deputy. And she says, you know, I, I need to think about that. And she said, she writes, she says, if, if Vilzak had called to offer me my old job back, I might've done it and gone on. But she said, I wasn't about to take on race in the, in the Department of Architect, uh, Department of Agriculture, this kind of thing. And I was convinced that I wasn't mad at Obama at that point. I don't think he knew about it when the thing went down. But I know one thing, I got the sense he wanted this to go away. He was trying to solve a problem. And so, no, I wasn't going to do that. But I'm saying I have to say that that same time Vilzak, is the one Biden wants to appoint because that's what institutions do. So how do these people represent us? Derrick Johnson spoke up, say, man, nah. And then he tried to put it in pragmatic terms. He said, you trying to win these two seats in Georgia? Troy Sherrod's a legend in Georgia. You worried about them seats in Georgia, hiring Tom Bills that might have a chilling effect on people voter turnout. And you need rural voters as well. You need Albany, you need Columbus, Georgia, where my people are from. Roland was talking about that last week. I mean, all these rural areas, you know? Biden not only blew past that, he then said, yeah, no, man. but here's here's the other thing, you know, you know, we got to be careful on this defund the police language. We, I mean, you know, we're going to do all the police reform stuff after this election, after the election, January 5th. We need those Senate seats. Dude, this is how you talk to us. Now, the question is to the question you're raising, Karen, what do you do at that moment? Because if you represent us and that's a big if, I'm not saying that people don't think they are and aren't trying and aren't being effective in some ways. But if you represent us, then you have to figure out what is in our best interest. And again, we're not all going to agree. So if you're Cedric Richmond and you're an advisor to Joe Biden, do you pull him aside and say, man, this is a mistake. If you're Kamala Harris, do you come in and say, hey, man, this is a mistake. And maybe they said that. But here's what we know patterns have been. We recognize patterns. When black people get a little rowdy, black people in spaces like that typically come out and ask black people to be patient. What? No, you. we sent you in that room to rain fire. I'm sorry. Did you miss the memo? Oh, no, we, we won't be effective. Okay, yeah, Monroe tried to dig get put out the White House. Yeah, uh, Lyndon Johnson did use the N-word. He was mad at Martin Luther King. But guess what? At some point, you got to make a choice. And so when you see an Al Sharpton, for example, who started as far outside as you could get, and now inside will raise some of these issues. But I've listened to those snippets of the tape. You know, I know Joe Biden. I, you know, I know what to expect of Joe Biden. I'm thinking to myself, I heard that before. Every time election time rolled around, when you're trying to get Miss Black people to vote for somebody who they looking at suspicious, I know so and so. I heard I heard Jim Clyburn say, it. I know Joe Biden. And then the young black people said, shit, we know him too. And Kamala Harris, we know her too, Kamala Harris. But wait, no, we got to get in. So meanwhile, while those conversations are being held, and let's make no mistake, this is where we make a little bit of turn transition. I'm realizing that we look past one o'clock, we're going to get to conversation with folks. While these conversations are being held with white institutions, and by white institutions, I mean the presidency, I mean the Congress, I mean the Senate. I'm not talking about American institutions. That's too vague. Again, we have to be clear-eyed about this. Can you see a thing up close and at a distance at the same time? 
while this is going on, people in this country who have no common interest with us have declared the thing they have that they hold most valuable. And these are the white nationalists who are prepared to embrace whiteness, even if it means the destruction of the political stru uh, structure and arrangement we typically think of as the United States of America. Those are the people that filed the lawsuits over the last month. These are the hundred and, oh my God, how many of them is it now? 126 people. Oh my God, we, we should talk about this in a minute. Texas versus Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin. These are the people who filed the lawsuits over the last few days. Uh, these are the people who joined the lawsuits, you know, over a dozen states and entities. Uh, uh, Citizens United filed an amicus brief. Citizens United filed an amicus brief. Roy Moore, Judge Roy Moore from Alabama, joined a couple of other lawyers, formed uh, and, and filed an amicus brief. I'm looking for the, I think I wrote it down somewhere around here. But, but anyway, my point is, and maybe we can put a pen in it and we can continue on the other side for a couple of minutes. While we're in the go, okay, I jump. No, I just, I need to understand what the hell was that? And then uh, Limbaugh talking yeah. about secession. Secession, like, how do you secede from the union when these people weaved in through all of the states? Like, it's not like they're living in one area. I would like them to leave. <laughs> Go wherever you need. Like, what was this lawsuit with the Supreme Court? Because it made no sense. But it made me fearful that, you know, with Amy Coney Barrett, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, Alito, Thomas, they had enough numbers, as you See, said, to do whatever the hell they wanted. Pause here again. This is, sister, you and I are both born in this country. People tell me this all the time. I said, well, you're an American. I said, I don't even know what that is. Besides, I'm a citizen. There is no common identity in this country. Yeah, got some common foods. Everybody like either the Cowboys or the, or the Washington football club, whatever. You got sports teams. You got some music you like. But let's be clear. These structures, it's a white settler state. And, and it was never meant to be what it is right now. People say, well, that means we're making progress. No, that just means it's different. Can you recognize patterns? Do you have best practices to negotiate within this field? So what's holding this thing together is an idea. So the question we ask ourselves is, again, going back to those three things I mentioned at the beginning, are there best practices for our, for our advancement as a group? Okay. Then we ask, how do we enhance our vision of what we want? Because this is where it gets difficult. Because if people were being just brutally honest, you know, it will look like a very different, we, we both know, all of us know, it'd be a very different conversation than the ones we have in, in polite company, which is why, yes, you know, the Cape Hearts, the Crosses, you know, the Joneses, it's all great, the Reeds, but let's be clear. The conversation you have at home before you go on that set with Joe uh, White, South White National Scarborough, and Mika Brzezinski, whose dad was in the foreign policy thing, is deep up to his eyeballs in some of this foreign intrigue, including places or people who are non-white, who look like us, the conversations you having on them sets, my friend Eddie Glau, I mean, you can get a little, you can get a little rowdy. You can use a little harsh language, but then you back it up because then they dangle that thing and they ask you, now, do you want to lose this perch? Now, on the other end of the spectrum are the other people who are in the space where we are right now, YouTube, and they just rah, 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 rah. Okay, but slow down. Can you recognize the patterns? Do you see the best practices? Do you have a, a vision? And, you know, no. Nah. But I'm saying, with all due respect, we have to ask ourselves in a moment like this, 
is there something in history where we can see patterns, we can, we can create a vision, and we can uh, create a notion of best practices? And the answer to that is yes and no. I'll do the no right quick for 30 seconds. The no is because the shifting demographics in this experiment make it unstable, always have. Once they recognize that these numbers could tip and they recognize it as early as the first third of the 20th century, you go back and read Gunnar Murdahl's An American Dilemma, and he's talking about demographic shift as early as the 1940s. But then you go back to the 1880s, the Chinese Exclusion Act. You fast forward, it isn't until 1924 that American Indians are recognized by statute as citizens. In other words, they're always worried about what they call in the first quarter of the 20th century, the yellow peril coming from Asia. They've always been looking at us like a fifth column. And so the idea is that, and by they, I mean white nationalists. So assimilation is has been the vision of the white settler state we call the United States. No, if you want in, you got to assimilate. What does that mean? Well, that means you got to be like us. Okay, I'm like you. Okay, but you're still black. Well, shit, I can't scrub my skin off. What you want me to do? Well, I guess there's nothing you can do. Second class. So I mean, in other words, there's nothing you can do to be them now. Within that large field of white people, you got some white people who are saying, well, I'm willing to set aside my whiteness. I guess this would be called allies, so to speak, in order to pursue a, a more common vision. And the irony is the deeper you go down in the class structure, the more you see the possibilities of that, which even precede the formation of the settler colony. You see that in the Virginia colony in the 17th century. You see that Bacon's Rebellion, Shays' Rebellion. You see the possibilities. You see it in the New York, uh, the New York Rebellions. Uh, what is it? 1712, the 1740s, you got some enslaved Africans, you got some poor whites. These people are like, what the hell is going on? You treat us all like shit. You see Christmas addicts, wrong place, wrong time. Down there on the docks in Boston, the so-called Boston Massacre. Some of them cats, them white boys, he works with down there. They throwing rocks at the British and the police shoot them. And so the idea is there's always been the possibility of some cross-racial, some uh, transracial coalition. But the thing that emerges at critical junctures is the offer of whiteness. And too many white people have chased the phantom of whiteness and began and have lockstep with these white people to ever realize the possibility of creating a different society. This is where, I mean, hey, Isabel Wilkerson has won all these awards for her book, Cast. And in a couple of pages in Cast, she kind of goes after this brother from Trinidad who was uh, writing out of Oklahoma, Langston University and some other places, uh, Oliver Cromwell Cox who wrote a number of books on uh, kind of what we might now call world systems analysis. He's dealing about caste. He's, in fact, his most famous book is called Caste, Class, and Race. And she trashes uh, Cox a little bit. He says, yeah, Cox is trying to compare India and the United States in terms of caste systems. He gets it wrong. He doesn't really deal with the Dalit people. And that's correct. But with all due respect to Isabel Wilkerson, she ain't no sociologist. And her solutions are more in the line of things, again, that the black elite can negotiate for with the white structure, which is, you know, we got to change attitudes. Got to be anti-racist. We got to change our language. We got to, we got to, got to act differently. It's an individual choice, and if we get enough individuals, we can build momentum. Oliver Cox and them cats, who are trained sociologists, do voice in them, looking like attitudes. Are you serious? Let me teach you about capitalism. Oh wait, I ain't got to teach you about capitalism, because if you write the thing you know, you won't get the award. You won't get the fellowship. You got to make this about attitudes instead of dealing with structures. And so what you see is what we saw in these lawsuits. So that's 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 the, the, the no part. You know, what can we learn from the past? The demographics are shifting. And as the demographics shift, 
there will be a plurality of people, a majority if you think about them collectively, who are going to be in those lower classes who are non-white, along with poor whites. But the yes we can learn from is what sends me back to the 19th century, the same place the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was born out of. To understand what's going on now, you got to understand what some people call reconstruction, and I refer to it as reconstruction. William Barber and them may call it the first reconstruction. Roland would call it the first reconstruction. And I would call it the first reconstruction until I think about it. And then I say, you know, the founding of this country is something different than the white settler state, at least the possibility of it. Isn't 1776? Isn't the Constitutional Convention or the ratification 1787? It's really that decade between 1865 and 1875. That's the founding. Because that's when you see the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. That's when you see state at the state level, black people, no black women, which means it's deeply flawed as a founding. But there are some black people, and many of the black men who are voting are doing it after consulting with families, with women, and they can do collectively. Look at the Crushank case. It's a great little volume here. Reconstruction and black suffrage, losing the vote in Reese and Crushank. Two, two Supreme Court cases we can talk about another time. But that is the moment when you see the possibility of the fracturing of a white coalition and the confrontation of white structural power because white power is in war, at war with itself. But what ends up happening is white power eventually comes to a truce at the federal level is symbolized by the election of 1876. After the election of 1876, that's when you see them put in place the language that we're gonna refer to in a minute when it comes to this Trump business in terms of saying, you know, uh, after this election, we got to set up some rules. That's what U.S. Code uh, 3, Section 1 comes in, in terms of being able to determine how we go about the process of this electoral college vote. Because what we can't have it happen again is these states sending dual uh, electors to Congress, and we got to pick between, and you know what, F it. Let's just vote. Congress vote. And they start horse trading in South Carolina, Florida, and Louisiana are the three states in, 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 in conflict with dual electors, and that's when the Republicans and Democrats make a deal and sell out the black people, the Hayes, Tilden Compromise. After that is when they put in the U.S. code, the rules that they're going to use to count these electoral college votes uh, next month. But anyway, so to understand what's going on in 2020, you got to go back to Reconstruction. So what do we see? Texas versus Pennsylvania, Georgia, Wisconsin, and Michigan, joined by a number of attorneys general from white states, opposed by the four states that they're trying to sue, almost two dozen amicus briefs filed. I'm sorry, no, no, pause, pause. No, because I was counting, because you know, I went on the Supreme Court website, a little bit of alchemy was able to go through and look, I'm, start, I'm starting to read these amicus briefs, which is fascinating. I felt like I was back in law school for a minute. I'm up and I was reading these, man, damn, this, this is crazy. I got I got papers to grade. I got to finish getting my grades in today, tomorrow. I'm like, but I, I, let me, let me, man, it just took me back. But 22 states and D.C., Guam, D.C. files the response of Mikas. D.C. isn't one of the four states that Texas targets. I'm sorry, the attorney general of Texas targets, because anybody in Texas, again, think about this language. D.C. with other states, Guam joined, files the amicus brief. Carl Racine, you know, Carl Racine is the brother who's the attorney general here in, uh, in D.C. Uh, love Carl Racine. Carl Racine is the one who 
yoked Trump up on this emoluments clause that ain't never been interpreted, and he ain't done with him yet. Between Carl Racine and really Tish James in New York State, it's coming for you, baby. That's why he, he ain't sleeping now. But at any rate, they form, they followed Amicus as well. But here's the interesting thing. And this brings up to the point you're raising, Karen. Here are the arguments that are being made in Texas versus Pennsylvania et al. and the other three states. If you read the Constitution, you look at Constitution Article 2. You know, three articles in the Constitution. Article 1, Executive. Article 2, Legislative. Article 3, Judiciary. And then the Bill of Rights. The amendment, And then the Bill of Rights and the amendments that come after that 10th Amendment of the Bill of Rights. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2. Meaning what? Second paragraph. Each state shall appoint in such a manner as the legislature thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in the Congress. But no senator and representative or person holding office of trust or property in the United States shall be appointed as elector. It's what they call the uh, electoral clause. So each state got to appoint the electors, right? Now, how do you get the electors? The state makes up their rules. In federal election. States make up the rule for selecting electors. When we go in and pull the lever for Trump or pull the lever for Biden, we're not voting for Trump or Biden. We're voting for electors. Who are those electors? They are picked by the respective parties to represent, and they are vetted, and one of them can't be from the state that you're voting in. So Hillary Clinton's in there. I mean, they're, the members of the Electoral College are people who are picked by the parties. So I'm voting for Biden. That meant you vote voted for X number of electors. Well, how many electors did I vote for? How many votes does your state get? That's the number. And if you voted for the Democrats, you voted for the Democratic electors, which means when they count the votes, if you win, your slate that you voted for is automatically made the electors from your state. That's the Electoral College at work, state by state. You're not voting for individuals. You're not voting for a candidate. You're voting for the candidate's party, which means you're voting for the electors. So that haven't been said. But the rules for it, this is just one paragraph. Texas goes to court after, because here's the thing. If you want to dispute a federal election, you got to do it at the state level because the state rules, state legislatures, state courts, topped off at the top by state Supreme Court, who's interpreting what the state constitution says. Texas is saying this. They go to court after all these cases have failed. All those cases have failed, they've been, they've been either state court or federal court. State court, like Pennsylvania, versus book bar. We talked about that a few weeks ago. This is, oh, this is the Republicans in the state legislature in Pennsylvania, who are the majority in the state legislature, suing the Secretary of State in Pennsylvania, who's a Democrat, saying, see, you extended the deadline and you shouldn't count the votes that came in, even though they were mailed before the 3rd of November, they came in after, you said up to three days, as long as they come in within the three-day window, you could do it. And the Secretary of State said, we made the adjustment, the COVID adjustment, because voting mail came in. Y'all agreed to these rules. The Republicans and the Democrats in the legislature, which means you voted on them. The Republicans are like, yeah, we did. And what they're not saying in the brief is, but we thought we was going to win the state. We're just trying to ensure this. We're going to win this state. So uh, these votes coming in and they for Biden, we don't want to count them. If you're coming for Trump, we want to count them. But I think... You know, we just we just want to be safe. We're going to suit shadow you. So the state Supreme Court in Pennsylvania says you're good. No, you, we interpret the rule that you pass in the legislature to say that you are following the rule. So what did the Republicans in Pennsylvania do who control the legislature? 
they should stop then because the state supreme, the state court gets to say what the law is. Now, they run to D.C., but they come through the district court, then come up to the Supreme Court. Hey, we need you to settle this state law. The people, I remember we were in class at the law school, you know, you know we're going, we're reading the case. And so I say, they shouldn't be involved in this. Why? Federal court shouldn't be involved in state election law. But Sam Alito, writing, says that. You know what? It's not ripe yet. Uh, but I tell you what sequester those votes that come in after November the 3rd. I mean, count them, do what you're going to do, but sequester them, even as you're counting them, because after the election, we may have to rule on this. So he's basically telling the Republicans, come back after the election. If it's close enough to steal, I might be able to help you out. So Bush and them, I'm sorry, Bush, hell, it's the same damn thing, because Bush versus Gore, what I'm thinking about, because even Clarence Thomas, I mean, uh, Matt, uh, Kavanaugh, quotes Bush v. Gore in another case. But anyways, whole other thing. Because you'll never see Bush versus Gore, which is terrible. Quote it, cite it. So what happens? They rushing to get Amy Comey Barrett on because it's going to be a 4-4 tie. They feel like if, if it's going to come down to Pennsylvania and it's close enough to steal, we want to throw those ballots out, we need that fifth vote. Because see, Johnny Roberts is scared now. The beast he done unleashed, Citizens United, uh, the beast he done unleashed, Shelby County versus Holder, all his little rah-rah, colorblindness, colorblindness. He's getting ready to bump you in the ass. Why? Because your little, your little structure, your little structure called the United States of America, it's just words on paper until people decide to make it. And you, you're scared now. So now he's flipping to go over with Sotomayor and Breyer and, um, and, uh, and, and uh, oh shit, that's it, isn't it? Uh, no, Elena, Elena Kagan. Kagan. Right, I'm sorry. Lena Kagan, I'm sorry. How, how can I miss New York, New York. She's New York. She's New York, and her brother uh, works at oh, Hunter okay. Hunter High School. I mean, so I, I know. Yeah, it is. Next. Law School. I just always block her in my mind because I'm thinking that was the black woman's seat that Barack Obama again showed us who he was. But that's a whole other conversation for another day. But yes, right. And then, of course, but now you can have a defection from Roberts because Gimberg is gone. That means you only get up to four. If we can get ACB on here, we're good. If it comes down to one state, it's close enough to steal. Because Alito already winked at us. But here's the problem. It didn't come down to one state. Oh, shit. It ain't just Pennsylvania? Nah, he won Wisconsin. What? Oh, he won Michigan. What? Yeah. It looked like he might win Georgia. Oh, shut the hell up. Why? Because the Negroes in Detroit, Negroes in Milwaukee, like we talked about before. Oh, no, nah, hell no. Nah. Get out, get out, get out, get out. So now, they just, now, oh, yeah, they try to do everything to prevent this. The first thing they did was try the, the Republican-controlled legislature in those states, particularly Wisconsin, tried to get them to stop counting. That was that stop the count kind of thing. Now they're going to go to court once the counting is done and these ballots are coming in because this is no different than any other year. Now they're going to try to invalidate. So that all failed. All them cases, hundreds of cases, 100 plus cases. This is their last ditch effort. So Texas says, let me come in and create some crazy shit. I'm just going to come up with some crazy shit. Just a crazy argument, except it was filed and it was heard, at least read through. This is where the, the, the this is where everybody should be nervous again. And I'm going to tie it to the 19th century and say, I know it's time. I'm going to get out of here in a second. The, the three counts, the Texas versus Pennsylvania, because these are four states where you got Republican-controlled legislatures. In Georgia, you got a Republican-controlled legislature and a Republican government. Pennsylvania got a Democratic governor. 
Michigan got a Democratic governor who they tried to kill. Ain't nobody say nothing or said he was going to kill. Wisconsin, same thing. Democratic governor, Republican legislature. So Texas sues because if you can flip them four states, you can give it to our man. So Texas, is your argument you want Trump to be president? Well, you can't just say that. Oh, and I should stop here for a second and remind people. Joe Biden got 81,283,495 votes, 51.4% of the vote. Donald Trump got 74,223,755 numbers. That's 46.9% uh, of the vote. In California, Biden won by 5,103,000, I'm sorry, 5,103,803 votes. In New York, Biden won by 1,992,776 votes. If you take the majority by which Biden won in California and New York out, take that out of the popular vote, Trump wins the popular vote by 36,839 votes. Please understand. He won by more than... That's New York and California. You take them out, Biden loses the popular vote. So these razor-thin margins in some of these other places, this serious business. You understand what we're talking about? And they thought they could get it close enough to steal in Wisconsin and Michigan, and they could trigger something else. But all the lawsuits failed because there's no evidence of fraud. Rudy Giuliani and them crazy people out there, oh, I saw people, I saw zombies, I saw uh, Jesus Christ came and voted five times, and then these Asians dropped out the sky in parachutes, and they voted. Whatever. Y'all crazy. Goodbye. Texas, we got the Hail Mary. The three things they asked the Supreme Court, they said, number one, they violated the Electoral Clause, Article 2, Section 2, the one we read. How they violate it? They didn't follow their laws. What do you mean? The legislatures said, and they start arguing over, this is about extending the, the time they count votes, and said, they didn't follow their laws in the states. Wait a minute. So the amicus briefs and the response briefs is, we did follow our laws. But before we even get to that, you Texas, we Pennsylvania. State law determines this. You ain't got no say. And by the way, they, we, this is what all them cases you lost at the state level came up. All the state courts have ruled. Some of them with more Republican appointees. And the federal courts do it all too. Texas, no, no, no. The second one, equal protection and due process is the third. 14th Amendment. They're saying that the states make election law. Yes, but you're depriving Texas of our due process and equal protection under the law. Why? As the United States. Wait a minute, what? I don't understand. It's okay, well, fine. You understand. This is what we want for the Supreme Court. We want you to declare that these states wrongly and incorrectly administered their elections and that they're violating the Electoral Clause and they're violating the 14th Amendment. So therefore, we want you to void the election. Do not allow any of those electoral votes to be counted. Enjoin the use of the results. Have a special election appoint the legislature to make the determination, which means in those states where you got Republican legislatures, all four of them do, they're going to put, they're going to vote for Trump and send Trump's electors. And while we waiting on that, we want you to enjoin certifying the election. And the date for them to do that, we passed that date, the so-called safe harbor date, the 8th of December, which is why they filed the lawsuit on the 7th of December. So that was Texas versus Pennsylvania at Al. Now, I'm going to wind this up because we, again, it's something we, the, the reason I'm bringing it up 
is because there, there are some themes that we should probably think about. This is part of the slow civil war. It's what we call it the slow civil war. Why? The civil war was never over. Understand that there are a couple of objectives. The first objective is to overturn the election. So now we turn on television, black, white, or polka dot commentators. You know, democracy won. We were able to beat back. Who is we? And what did you win? It wasn't the institutions that helped you. In fact, Tim Wu wrote an article in the uh, New York Times the, uh, the, on the 10th. And he said, it really wasn't, it really ain't the institutions that have been able to hold up to what's going on with Trump and them. You know what it is? He says, it's federal prosecutors who are not jumping in, into this stuff. It's the military who's not going to intervene. And it's state election officials that won't back up, like the Republicans in Georgia, this kind of thing. But look how it's narrated in the media. These, these Republicans at the state level, these Republican Trump appointee judges, they're doing the right thing. They're doing their job. Nobody gets a carrot for doing a job. Quit acting like these cats are heroes. Well, they are heroes because they turned against the, the obvious attempt to destroy our democracy. First of all, there ain't no democracy. It's a republic. Go back to civics class. Second of all, just because they, some of them are doing it at the same time, like the like the uh, the attorney, not attorney, the uh, secretary of state in Georgia, while they're still purging people off the voter roll. While y'all worried about whether Trump won or not, this cat in Georgia is trying to make sure they keep those two seats. He ain't no hero. Everybody pay attention. Can you see the patterns? Oh, you can't see it. Let me walk you back to the 19th century on voter suppression. This is how it works. These are not heroes. But Tim Wu is like, you know, Congress didn't help. They had a big fail. They could have stopped this. Yeah, but they ain't going to stop it. Why? Because one of those amicus that was filed, oh, my God. 125 congressmen. I read the brief. Among those people, uh, Mike Pence's brother, who's a congressman out of Indiana, of course, Jim Jeffries in them. Uh, Jeffries out of Ohio. Uh, no, no, yeah, Jim Jeffries. Uh, that fast-talking Doug Collins out of out of Georgia. All of them, they're all, they're part of that 125 Congress people. Uh, Meadows, Steve Scalise, whose life was saved by a black woman at the softball game. He, damn that, I want your vote. And so I, I want to take your vote. They all filed this amicus brief. Now, who else filed an amicus brief? Can't they say they all scattered together throughout the country? That don't mean nothing. I read an amicus from, it was called New California State and New Nevada State that filed an amicus brief in support of Texas. Do you know what New California and New Nevada State is? These are two entities that say, we are trapped in California, we are trapped in Nevada, we're against these democratic governors and we support Texas. It's a cold civil war. The slow cold civil war. These are white nationalists in California, in Nevada, who are not referring to themselves as Californians and Nevadans, but new Californians and new Nevadans. They filed an amicus brief. And guess what? Wasn't rejected. It's all the Supreme Court beat them back. Boy, you better look at the details. This is the problem. You better look at the details now. Because this thing was too close for comfort. And then when you read the Supreme Court's, uh, let me see if I, I wrote it down somewhere. Because, yeah, here we go. Texas versus Pennsylvania. They ruled yesterday. Just a couple of paragraphs. I like the guy who writes uh, SCOTUS blog, the editor of SCOTUS blog. It's a good resource. He said, this is an opportunity for the Supreme Court of the United States to make a statement about the nature of American government. They could take their time and explain why they are not going to hear this case 
and why Texas doesn't have standing, which is what all these amicus briefs were saying and what the four states said in response to Texas. What does that mean? They're saying Texas does not have standing. By the way, I should explain this very quickly. Article three of this constitution is the judiciary. One of the original, if not the original reason to have a federal judiciary in the Supreme Court at the top was to settle disputes between states. That's what you call original jurisdiction. So Texas mad at Oklahoma or Texas mad at Louisiana over some border disputes, some water, some lines, this kind of thing. Who, which court do they go to? You don't go to Texas court. You don't go to Louisiana court. You go to the federal court and you don't go through the federal district court because the districts are split up in the, no, you go straight to the top. Supreme court, Texas is fighting Louisiana over this water line. What the hell? That's called original jurisdiction. That is your, that's the first place you go, original. The other form of jurisdiction is appellate jurisdiction. Meaning you go somewhere else first and you work your way up through. That's why all the election disputes that they went to the federal court on had to go through the district court, then the court of appeals, then it had to go to Supreme Court if Supreme Court would hear it. What is clear, Article 3, is that original jurisdiction is the United States Supreme Court's purview. They have that ability to settle disputes. Now, they decided that um, they do not. They denied Texas. They said the state of Texas motion for leave to file a bill of complaint is denied for lack of standing under Article 3. What does that mean? It means Texas cannot show harm because of Pennsylvania's election, because of Georgia's election. You've demonstrated no harm. You don't have standing. Standing in the law means you have the right to a remedy. You can establish that I have a right to, the re to a remedy. That's why Bush versus Gore stinks to high heaven. George Bush voted in Texas, not Florida. But we won't get into that. That's a whole nother conversation. I mean, then there are reasons why they, they accepted this kind of thing. But the first thing to get in court is, has to have standing. You know, you know, Professor Karen Hunter slapped me. Okay, I'm going to sue you for assault. Well, I have standing. I was the one that got slapped. The Supreme Court is like, Texas, you can't show. Texas' argument was, well, yeah, but see, if, uh, if this election stands and it gets thrown to the Congress and it's a tiebreaker and the vice president is a Democrat, they're going to vote against. And people in the Dominicans are like, what the hell are you talking? Wait, those, that's too many supposes. You don't have no, but here's what they also say. Texas had not demonstrated a judicially cognizable interest in the manner in which another state conducts its elections. In other words, you haven't shown an interest that is judici judicially cognizable, that we can recognize as a matter of law. So they dismiss it except to say, we should have heard it. And I won't say anything else about it. That's Sam Alito and old Clarence Thomas. <laughs> the decision ain't nothing but a paragraph. But at the bottom of it, Alito writing and Thomas Joyne says, you know, SCOTUS Supreme Court does not have the discretion to deny the filing of a bill of complaint in a case that falls within its original jurisdiction. Because these two have always believed, and Thomas wrote this in a dissent from a case called Arizona versus California, which I went back and read the dissent and then read before it. Arizona California says, versus California says, um, Thomas dissents. He says the Supreme Court likely doesn't have the discretion to decline review in cases where our original jurisdiction arises. In other words, you don't have the discretion not to hear a case. Now, 
I wish and will never know unless one of them retire or, or keeps a secret diary. I would love to have been a fly on the wall and the arguments they were having behind closed doors, those clerks and those justices. Because I can hear Sergeant Sotomayor saying, look, we should just write a five page thing explaining that this is some BS and you should never do this again. Meanwhile, I can hear Comey Barrett just sitting there and me, quiet, man. It ain't close enough to steal. Sam, it ain't close enough to steal, is it, bro? Nah, it ain't close enough to steal. We just need to let this shit pass. But I'm going to tell you one thing. I would have liked to have heard it, at which point, like you said, Sotomayor and Kagan and Briar get nervous. Oh, shit, man. Are they going to hear this shit? Because if they hear this shit, I'm going to So you, we don't know how close we came. <laughs> you understand? People say, oh, yes, and now they come on TV. Oh, yes, it's a victory for a democracy. Yeah, don't do that. Don't be telling people nothing like that. This is a long, cold civil war. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand how close we are at any given moment to a different interpretation of the law, which then, let me, let me wind this up very quickly because it ain't over. It ain't over. Why is it not over? Because here's the problem. Monday, the Electoral College meets. According to the, uh, the law, it meets the first Monday after the second Wednesday in December. They vote, they tabulate, they send the votes by registered mail to the president of the Senate, which is the vice president, Mike Pence. You got from the 14th of December to the 23rd of December. It's got to be received by nine days after they mail it by registered mail. So you better hope this little jacked up post office is good. That's the deadline for the D.C. receipt. <laughs> the day before Christmas Eve. Okay, that's first, right. Then the 3rd of January, the new Congress is sworn in. On the 6th, they count the electoral votes. Now let's go to Title Three, U.S. Code, Section 1. Oh, by the way, between the 23rd of December and the 3rd of January, early voting in Georgia starts on Monday. Just putting a footnote there for people who might want. Early voting, got three weeks of early voting. Come on, y'all. Let's turn it out. And again, Jerry Johnson tried to tell Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, look here, man, y'all going to vote for bills that y'all going to y'all going to really defecate on Shirley Sherrod like that. While you trying to get George people to vote, I'm trying to save you as a matter of policy, even as I'm standing up for my sister. But you ain't trying to hear you want to talk about defunding the police. You and Jim Clyburn and the rest of y'all go over and sit down somewhere, get a timeout. Y'all trying to win this election or not. But anyway, that haven't been said. On the 6th of January, electoral college votes are counted. And that's when the controlling rules are in Title Three of the U.S. Code, Section 1. Title Three, U.S. Code, Section 1 says, Pence stand up there, staff stands up there, they open the, the envelopes one by one, you count out the vote, and each state represented by a senator and a Congress, uh, a House of Representatives person, but you can have an objection. You can object to the vote. Every time you, anytime somebody raises an objection, which must be uh, affirmed by a senator. Got to be a senator and a congressperson. You mean tell me the white nationals don't have at least one crazy ass senator and one crazy, they got they got 126 of them signed a damn brief. So I'm saying an amicus brief, I object. Okay, when they say that, what has to happen? The two sides of the federal legislature, House Representatives, Senate, who are together to count the electoral votes, must now separate and debate the objection. Oh, Jesus. They could literally stop this thing 50 times. Not counting the District of Columbia. So, in other words, so don't think it's going to be over on the 6th. I'm saying you got to go read Title Three U.S. Code Section 1. I mean, it literally, now there's a two-hour cap on the debates. But I'm saying, but here's, here's the final thing I'll say, Karen, and I want to, there's a Freddie Douglas quote that comes to mind. Because there's a lot more we could talk about, but I'll stop with this. I'll stop with this. One of the objectives was to change the results. 
But that's not the, the long goal objective. The real objective is to solidify the thing that they've been arguing about since when it looked like white supremacy was no longer going to be the organizational logic of this settler project. And that is white resentment. And that is white anger. You can lose an election as long as you can nurture the lost cause like a child. Understand what they said when the South lost the Civil War. I, I encourage people again to get Brooks Simpson's nice volume, one volume, uh, Reconstruction. It's got all these primary documents. I love this volume. You know, when they lost the election, in fact, while they were getting ready to debate the 14th Amendment, this is what they said. They're talking about the Democrats, who are, who are the white nationalist party of the 19th century. This is from a speech Oliver Morton gave in June 1866. He says that the federal party opposed the War of 1812 and died from the effects of it a, years later, years later, a few years later. The Whig party opposed the Mexican War in 1846 and lived about six years longer. Yet these parties mediated no treason and when the conflict began, did not sympathize with the enemy or give aid and comfort, but gave their earnest and hearty support to the government and the army. By the way, people now saying, OK, you can get these Republicans who sided with this uh, with Texas. You can get them thrown out for treason. Now, they didn't secede from the union yet. But here's where it gets interesting. He says, how then shall it be with the Democratic Party? Put in how should it then be with the Republican Party? Now, the parent of the rebellion, who, while the southern wing was in arms against the government, while Texas was like, throw the election out. The Northern wing gave to it material aid and comfort and cheered it on in the deadly contest. Meaning what? All these people, the Republicans who won't recognize uh, Biden-Harris as the winners, who ain't saying nothing, you're giving aid and comfort to these ostensible rebels. And that's why they wrote in these rules after the Hayes Tilted Compromise to make sure that they could punish people. In fact, the 14th Amendment has a fourth section, fourth clause, fourth section, that says, if you're a rebellion, we can put you out of the Congress. That's what they're saying now. They should use the 14th Amendment. Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi ain't gonna use the 14th Amendment because Nancy Pelosi thinks these institutions are real. And I said that was the last thing. I know there's, oh, Frederick Douglass. This is what I want to quote from Frederick Douglass. This is, because this is what Fred, Fred Douglass gives this speech in 1872. He's saying vote for Grant. Because these white supremacists, they can lose an election, but they believe that they their whiteness is the most valuable thing. Their cousins, their grandchildren, great-grandchildren are the ones in here now. They pick their whiteness over the country. And then this is what Douglas says. Douglas says that we are told by our friends of the Greeley persuasion, Horace Greeley running against the Grant, that our fears are groundless, this white supremacist attack on the country that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments are now part of the Constitution. And there is no power to take them out of the Constitution. That's how you people on TV see our structures work. Here's what Fred Douglas telling you from 1872. Douglas says, alas, I love it because it's got an exclamation point. I wish I could have heard him give this speech. Alas, this assurance is little better than a mockery. Constitutions do not execute themselves. We have had justice enough in our Constitution from the beginning to have made slavery impossible. Mind you, the 15th Amendment says you extend the right to vote. It don't mention gender. Why'd you need a 19th? This is about interpretations. Douglas goes on and says, finally, the trouble never was in the Constitution, but in the administration of the Constitution. All experience shows that laws are of little value in the hands of those unfriendly to their objects. This is all about power. And they can make that law sing any kind of way they want it to sing. Don't, don't underestimate how close we came to something else yesterday. And as you mentioned, 
it's not over. And you didn't mention you didn't mention January fifth, which is the runoff election in in Georgia, the well, Senate election. Early voting to me, yeah, the no, fifth is less important. If everybody goes out and vote, the fifth and maybe five people in line. Look, the turnout is terrible. Nah, we've been voting for three weeks. I went and got my grandma. I went and got, that's why you got to get everybody out before the fifth. Make the fifth the cleanup operation. But but yes, the fifth is the special election. That's right. Because if if Asif and Reverend uh, Warnock both lose their seat. I think it gives energy to what you're talking about. It does. It does. Well, well, it does. It does. And here's the challenge. Oh, Karen, that's so important. Oh, my God. Here's the thing. Let's say they lose. What what did uh, what did Sherilyn? What did Derek? What did the folk, Vanita Gupta, what, you know, Leadership Council of Civil Rights, you know, what did they tell Biden Harris in that meeting? One of the things, y'all can do a lot of stuff with executive order. If you're as brazen as the White Nationalist Party, you would do it. But Biden immediately, well, no, there's some things we could do, but no, some things, because then they'll come back. Look here, man. Joe, working class Joe, Scranton, PA Joe, Delaware Joe. You still believe you better go read some damn Frederick Douglass, bruh. That law don't mean nothing. One thing you should learn from the White Nationalist Party, if you study history, they're going to do what they need to do to achieve their objective. Then you're going to come in and start talking about the Constitution and rules and institutional integrity and the rule of law. They looking at you like, man, did you see I banned all the Muslims and the courts let me do it? And I took people from their children and the courts let me do it? Bruh, what you going to do? So Biden response is well, we must be, he's what they call an institutionalist now nah, if they lose them two seats i would look what they tell him man you better sign executive orders for the next two years and then two years from now we flip this damn congress and guess what y'all stop chasing them three white voters and ain't never coming back would you get stacy abrams in here to tell you how to win these damn elections but they're not going to do it which is why we could get stuck with a bill worse than trump in four years if mm. we're not careful because they're still thinking institutional framework as if they are not students of history. And that's the problem. And Greg Palace said, or somebody said, I've talked to so many people that (laughs) that Trump was so bad at it and still was effective. There's somebody who is charismatic, who is not a bloated, orange, Cheeto looking, fat, greasy, dumb. You know, there's somebody actually with a pedigree, with a knowledge, with, with, an understanding of how to, you know, show up, who can do this white national thing without the hood, without being obvious. There's somebody who's been studying. Yeah, real, Red. real powers like Ben Sass out of Nebraska. You can start naming them. The oh, reason okay. they ain't said nothing yet Let's is because, it. you know, they like, Mitt Romney may come. They, they, they call him Mitt Romney a damn profile in courage. Mitt Romney is like, I got mine on 24, baby. <laughs> Y'all better stop calling that man a profile in courage. <laughs> oh, and also um, defund the police happened in Minnesota. George Floyd's state, $8 million taken from the police force. Yeah. Uh, so it was actually starting to happen where they're redirecting funds to things like social programs that, you know, really should not be under the purview of the police anyway. Well, that's true. But Jacob Frey, the mayor of Reagan Friday, mayor of Minnesota, actually pushed back against the city council because you know they had gone a lot farther and here's the problem we had there, there seemed to be two pandemics well there's one permanent pandemic what Raphael Warden called COVID 1619 
the pandemic we're facing now, COVID-19, revealed for a lot of people, COVID-16, 19, we know the pandemic, but then there's a minor pandemic called the blue flu. Because what you see is the crime rates are up in Minneapolis, St. Paul. Talking about people in Minneapolis, St. Paul, they walked me through that whole question. And while they did cut $8 million from a $170-some million police budget, what Fry said, no, what we're not going to do is reduce the number of officers on the force. I still want it to stick at 880-something. Right now, they're in the 700s. So he wouldn't let them reduce the number of police. And finally, Blue Flu, Atlanta, Minneapolis, St. Paul, Chicago. Some of these places, these damn white nationalist cops, many of whom belong to white supremacist organizations. If you go look at the testimony was before Jamie Raskin's subcommittee a couple of months ago, the sister from St. Louis, who's a retired sergeant, walked everybody through those white supremacists. They have decided now, let's just slow it down. Let people shoot each other and robberies and things. We're going to show them, you know, what we mean. We just going, and they call it the blue flu, calling out, this kind of thing. So that's a complicated situation. It is a victory. It is a victory and it's a start. In LA, they try to do something similar. But it's, uh, it's it, actually, Karen, you gave us a great example. That's why we have to keep pushing. It's not about the people who are meeting with Biden and Harris. It's about all them people who are organizing in the street who have to put those people who go in the room in a position to say, mm -hmm. we're not asking you not to appoint Bill Zach. We're telling you. No, Brother Clyburn, thank you for your lap. You're a great civil rights leader. It's important. Now, please, sir, we're going to give you an award. You go sit down. Because we can really go punch your mans in the face. Why? Because you see us in here? Look out that window. You see all them kids out there? We're not coming back in here again. So Kamala, Kamala, get your friend. Get your friend. Unless you're with him. Now, if you're with him, we have a conversation with you too. Because you're all employees. That's all politicians are. We got to stop treating them like celebrities or saviors. Come on. All right. Uh, Q&A time. Yes. And let me say thank you. Uh, There's a brother in here, first time uh, from Cambridge, U UK. Oh, wow. Live. Welcome, Antoine, and all of the folk who are here in class at 3,500 of you. Love you. Thank you. Uh, hit the thumbs up because it doesn't cost you anything. And yes. I love, thank you all the people who have donated and bought shirts and, uh, you know, contributed to this. Uh, you don't have to contribute to the mic fund. I was already going to send Dr. Carl, Mike, we got this covered, <laughs> please. But, you know, we appreciate the love, love because, because this, this is, this is the birthing of something, you know, and you guys are, you know, the seed. Yes. You guys are the seed. We can't do this without you. So thank you uh, for all of the support. So let me welcome in uh, our first question asker. Uh, her name is Tiffany. She is uh, in Stone Mountain, Georgia oh. by, by way of, uh, Chicago, by way of Chicago, I'm going to bring her in. And she also has a connection to Minneapolis. Tiffany. Oh, welcome, Tiffany. Hello, hello. I am so good. Uh-oh, I hear. Is can it, you hear me? Yeah, I yeah. can, but it's can a little hear. bit spotty. You, you keep having this problem, Dr. Carr. It's you. <laughs> is it me? Yeah, let me yeah, turn it, it up. Oh, but we got I, I, something I, on this. Uh, all right. You know, Tiffany. usually after a few seconds, it clears up. Try again. Hey, okay. Tiffany. How you doing, Dr. Carr? I'm fine. I'm fine. It's good to see you. You you good. you in Stone Mountain right now? I am in Stone Mountain right now. Okay, you from Chicago? Yeah. But I'm from the South Side of Chicago and live in South Side. Yes, Woodlawn, yes. and um, also lived in Minneapolis um, for about seven years before oh, I. As well. Yes, yes. So oh, so you know you know this year has been it's been crazy, um, but. <laughs> It's been crazy, you know, just with everything that happened and with George Floyd. I mean, that was really, 
you know, deep because I I worked in that area. I was a policy aide in uh, Minneapolis City Council. Oh, so then you can absolutely. What's your, what's your read on this thing that just went down? It's more nuanced than what we're reading, huh? Which thing? On this whole <laughs> idea, the phrase saying, you know, we'll take the eight million hits to the police, but I won't reduce the number of police officers. I mean, what's your what's your read on what they're trying to do around there with city council and so called defund Which I think they changed the safety for all. I think is what they call it. I don't right, know right. Well, I mean, you know, I have some really good friends who are in leadership position in the uh, Minneapolis City Council. Andrea Jenkins, um, you know, good good friends. Actually, I came in as a policy aide. Um, when I, I was an intern first under her with Robert Lilligrand, and now she's in city council. So uh, really excited to see that leadership. I mean, Minneapolis is a um, strong council, weak mayor structure. Yeah. So the mayor really, um, you know, is really over the police budget and the council is over everything else. So, oh. so you know, so it's a negotiation. You know, I mean, I think a million is good, but it's a hundred thirty plus million dollar budget. So about that. Wait, wait, yes. wait, was Sister Jenkins one of the ones, uh, one of the folks that had to get extra protection? Yes. My God, these people yes. are crazy. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Huh. Exactly. What's going so, on, sis? I mean, you know, lots, lots. I've been um, deep in this, you know, in your class every Saturday. Um, I try to be home at twelve o'clock. Otherwise, oh, I, you know, I watch it like uh, at night. Me and my husband, but he's out working today. Um, just tell many. Said, tell me, said hello. I, mean, I yeah. will. I will. Hopefully, he's uh, watching. I sent him the link. Um, okay. Yeah. Stay safe. Everybody can't afford to stay home. Like you say, got to be out there to protect yourselves. I know George is a little wild, wild west. Some of these yeah. ain't wearing no masks. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Uh, we use a whole lot of Instacart. When it comes to <laughs> grocery shopping, That's right. but um, you've you've touched on so many things today. Um, you know, you were you started off talking about Muslims, so we are. Um, I'm a um, converted to Islam when I was in 2000 2009, um, but my husband's second generation uh, Muslim, and you touched on that right when you started. So I was like, hmm, okay, man, I have to ask a question right, about inshallah, that. Inshallah, did he come in yes. through the nation initially? Um, no, he's um, second generation. So his mom and dad were were Muslims and they in like the 60s. So okay. were, but, they, were they in a while? No, they were more um, Sunni. Oh, they like, were Sunni. Sunni okay. Muslim. Yeah. What a but, beautiful tradition. I mean, you know, and that's, that's such a people know there are a lot of Muslims of African descent. But we typically this country tries to narrate folks of African descent as Muslims who say they came here from other places. They don't realize there's a huge right. indigenous Muslim population. Exactly. Oh, wow. OK. Well, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Then, I've and a then, lot about Muslims lately. This book really on the Tijana. Who are the okay. Sufis oh, in, uh, and he's in yeah. And he is definitely a Tijani. Oh, because Yes, because my 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 husband lived in Senegal for four years. Oh, this is it, man. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to play that back and and or get it. I know Karen usually puts the books. Yeah, Karen, yeah, in fact, but, this book just came out. I've been reading. Okay, a lot really. About him. Okay, I'm gonna have to get that. Oh, I got I got this. Hold on, wait, can you see it? Oh, look at you! You got this. <laughs> yes. yes you know I, and that was hard to get. We're gonna do her next week. That okay. book. Have you started it yet? Yes, I, I'm in like I'm on page like 50. I mean, it's so deep. She, I mean, she. I'm like, wait a minute. This lady was that. all over the world, right? I'm right. like, how is she traveling by herself? She's like, oh, I was gone for six weeks, right. and I'm like, wait a minute. Can can I just get one trip? Um, how do we not yes. know anything about this sister? I inserted her, so I'm working on a project with um, 
African-American Muslim women called Arab woman about our leadership and about really our response to George Floyd calling for his mother and saying that he was he was calling for all mothers to really stand up and 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 proliferate our motherhood leadership. So we were putting together our presentation and I literally inserted a picture that I found of Anna Hedgeman sitting with a Philip Randolph with the um, the picture of the um, the grounds in D.C. So I put her I put her in that presentation. But um, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we I, I mean, I could talk to you all day, but. So and the question, I, and I love yeah. your shirt, by the way. That, oh, thank that's you. A, you know, question. <laughs> yes, you know, I had to find a shirt today. I was like, hold on. You know, hold I know on. that's right. And, and of course, those ancestors now include George Floyd and his mother. Exactly. They're together now on the other yeah. side. So look exactly. Out. Yeah, and this is from um, my son's home. We homeschool my my youngest, and he's really? in a beta beta club for black homeschoolers. So that oh, this really? shirt is really yeah, this shirt is for them. Okay, y'all pay attention to that. Everybody write that down, Beta Club, because the whole Black homeschool movement, of course, as you know, is way old. That network, I know y'all got a strong network. Well, and that network, you know, was really founded by Clara Muhammad. Come on now. So she was one of the first homeschoolers. So so I want to stick, I guess, to my my question, try to get to that. This is great. So my my family, um, actually, my great-great-aunt, Daisy, was actually one of the earliest members of the the nation of islam she moved from opelika alabama to detroit in the uh, early 30s and so the oral tradition in my family has been that she uh was seminal to the creation of the bean pie really yes and so i'm working on a book um about her about my grandmother who she raised my mother and myself but i'm trying to really find some other primary sources about the bean pie um, and it's been very difficult. <laughs> um, so I'm like, wait a minute, if I get to talk to the brain that is Dr. Oh, no. Carr, uh, let me, let me see what he, what he throws out there, let you know, me, some nuggets. Um, what do you, uh, do you have, um, I'm trying to think if I see anything here that comes to mind, the, what, what have you had? I'm thinking primarily about nation history, but also secondary stuff on the nation. H- have any books been helpful to you so far? Um, uh, I, there's a few. I'm I'm waiting on uh, Dr. Zakia Muhammad's book on Clara Muhammad to come, but I know she's yes. doing it in like three pieces. So this is only say, I yeah, think I up to 1930, and I, I actually was going through my notes and was like, oh my goodness, I had an interview with Dr. Zakia Muhammad from 2018. Really? You know, yeah, and you know she passed. Um, you know, uh, last yeah. summer, last summer. So I re-listened to that this morning and just you know trying to make sure I took notes again from what, what we talked about. Um, so I don't, you know, it's not a lot there. Um, so if let, let another, uh, think about it, think about it. But no, another no, no, reason uh, I say it is because the, the, the literature, you know this history better than I do. But you know, of course, they talk about what well, in the nation, I guess they call it that Detroit history, right? <laughs> they talk about, uh, of course, Master Farad Muhammad. And mm-hmm. uh, there are a couple of books that have come out recently on him. One is called The Chameleon. Which is okay. an interesting book because there's a lot of primary documents. I forget the author. That's why I was looking around. I think I have it in the other room. It's called The Chameleon. Okay. It's on the life of Master Fraud Muhammad. And then uh, there's a book. Was it old? I think it's called Old Islam, New Detroit, or Old Detroit, New Islam. Okay. It talks about the various strains of Islam um, uh, that kind of converge in Detroit. 
Also, mm -hmm. Michael Gomez's book, Black Crescent, which talks about the history of Islam in the United States. And the reason I'm saying this is because it wouldn't necessarily, I'm thinking more about the footnotes in those books. Right, so exactly. just, I mean, so looking for sources, uh, archives, places like that. Mm -hmm. um, and I got a couple of folks, uh, in fact, here, put my email down. It's, uh, I'll give my uh, my Gmail account. Um, P-E-R-M-E-D-J-A-T. P-E-R-M-E-D-J-A-T. It means House of Books. Permajat at Gmail. Okay. That's, that's my general email. Because, you know, I've got a lot of good friends. Now you know everybody going to start emailing you. That's all right. It don't matter. Because, I mean, Gmail can handle it. No but, right. but they have a, um, I got a lot of good friends in the nation. And mm -hmm. so, you know, old heads. Because at this point, like you said, you, right. read, in fact, I was reading one of the books that she did on uh, Sister Clara Muhammad. It's more of a kind of a, autobiographical gloss and when you see it you mm -hmm. see what i mean it's not not heavily footnoted as much but your your man she's from opalaka opalaka yeah so that you know, my I, mother is born between opalaka and c or russell county so i know okay. exactly where that is on, on the okay. Alabama side of georgia state line no question i've been over many times okay um, how old was she when she left she was like 19 20 okay. she's really she's really young so then it seemed that uh, you still got family there and no, I mean, I don't know. I mean, this is like, you know, just stringing together these little pieces has been challenging. Well, the, the reason I ask is because, you know, of course, in the nation, they talk about the Navy bean and they said Master Farad taught Honorable Elijah Muhammad's brothers, families how to do that bean soup and how to use mm -hmm. it. But um, we'll check that on the nation side. I got some good friends on the nation okay. side. We'll, we'll yeah. But I wonder if she took her contribution to Detroit from Alabama since she was grown when she left. Might be right. that the answer to your question is sitting over there in Russell County somewhere waiting mm -hmm. on somebody. To, oh yeah, you know, we had that recipe. And then right. <laughs> and man made his way to Detroit from Alabama. If she's that age, she was cooking before she left, I'm sure. Yeah, she definitely was. I mean, cooking was a big part of her um, contribution to the nation. Um, the stories are that she would cook. She had a second kitchen and she would cook um, for, um, you know, uh, Elijah Muhammad, you know, young Farrakhan, um, all of these things. So, yeah, yeah. So there's, there's, I'm trying to, you know, put it together, um, as much as I can, you know, to tell, you know, just to try to document this story. But one of the other things, you know, I, when you, you mentioned, when you said, inshallah, I was like, all right. Um, oh, no question. just, just thinking about black Muslims role in a black America's fight for freedom and dignity. Uh, what role do you think black Muslims can really um, create now? I mean, you know, civil rights was more like Christian, but there was this black Muslim movement, of course, as well. And uh, part of what we're trying to do in Arab Woman is really bring those two together and saying like, look, we got to really fight together, everybody. That's right. That's right. right. We're fighting for humanity. I think, um... It's very important to understand, I think, like you said, this is why I love uh, Mike Gomez's book um, on uh, Islam, because what he shows is Muslims been here since the beginning. As you said, I mean, your husband, like you said, to spend that time in synagogue, those Muslims got on the boat. In fact, uh, the scholars pretty much agree. I'm thinking about my sister out there in Oklahoma, uh, Honoré Fanon Jeffers, who just wrote this book called The Age of Phyllis on Phyllis Wheatley Peters, as she calls her, you know, when that little girl got on the boat in synagogue, she's a Muslim. I mean, you know, we, we talk about Phyllis Wheatley. It's like, yeah, but, you know, and there's a very good book 
actually, ironically, University of Minnesota Press. There's a brother out on the West Coast, Sahel uh, Dalatsai. He wrote a book called Black Star Crescent Moon. And what he talks about is how Islam becomes the thing, particularly young people gravitate toward in the 1960s and 70s, even after the nation has been there a generation, because Islam represents a very, for the, for the people who weren't Muslim, as they say, we'll go back to the 18th, 19th, 20th century, early 20th century, those Muslims who come into Islam are making a political choice because Islam is the bridge that white people can't follow them over. He said, we're not Christians. <laughs> you ain't going to follow us into Islam. You just simply cannot see yourself. And so from that base, I think the, 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 the foundation, Islam provides a foundation politically for our people and it influences. And, uh, you know, good brother, uh, brother Sahel, he really lays out how Islam provides that shelter and that, that foundation. So even if you're not a Muslim, like say I'm not a Muslim, but I got such respect. Like I've been, I mean, I've been deep diving into the pre-enslavement Islam now because the intellectual tradition, Timbuktu, uh, Akmi Baba, you know, my, my one of my jagnas, John Henry Clark used to always talk about Akmi Baba. So I had to go get all that literature, uh, John Hunwick's books and all this deal with these translations. But that, that 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 the nation, oh my goodness, black people, like my mother, 93 years old, soon be 93, Christian you know, from Alabama, right there near Opelika. My mother lead a church on Sunday. We lead church before we get home. We stop by the nation to get the whiting fish because the institutional presence of the nation, a place like Nashville, Tennessee, and of course, how university is known as the Mecca. How does that nickname come into existence? By the 1960s, it's one thing to call it the capstone of Negro education. It's another thing with the energy of Malcolm and the nation and all these folks. Mecca becomes a brand that transcends Islam. So I think finally, um, some of the most powerful networks I've ever seen in my life have been among the Muslims in this country. You see them going for prayers on Friday in West Philly. I would go by the mosque. Um, I've lost a number of the times I've been in Nation of Islam meetings, you know, sat with the minister. And uh, I mean, one time I was teaching in a women's prison as an extension program at Columbus State University when I was in grad school, uh, law school. And then I decided that I was going to go out to Allenwood federal penitentiary during Black History Month. And I went in and the nation, the Muslims, just not just the nation, all the Muslims, they had, they were in the middle of their prayer meeting. And the Imam, their Imam was there. So I went in to the facility and I was supposed to speak after that, but I went in and sat down because when I when I when I came in the little holding part, they had the big room. And I guess there's probably maybe hundred guys there. And so they're checking me in. They got my ID and everything. I'm standing there. The guards are all around. And I looked up and the brother was standing. They were standing on post like they do when you come into the nation meeting, right? So the brother did what the brothers do and sisters do when they're on post. The brother was like, so I looked, followed the hands, went in. The next guy took him, did this. Guys in the row. I sat down. I'm sitting there for about five minutes. And I look up and I look back at the, 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 at the holding place, the place where you check in. And the guards are just, just gesturing wildly. They said, what, what are you? So I got up, excuse me, brother, excuse me, walked back out. So what's up? He said, you went in there without us. I said, yeah. He said, that's dangerous. I said, let me tell you something. That's the safest place in here. I trust them for I trust y'all. <laughs> the Muslims, I ain't got this, come on. Anyway, but I'm just saying, 
<laughs> so I think, no, you can't overstate the importance of Islam. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you and, and reading your scholarship and research on this because that story's got to be told. And the organization that y'all put together. Yes. Yeah. No, yes, thank, thank you, you so much. Um, and I think Karen and I are going to be be talking as well about homeschooling and all of that. But I know you all, we're over time, so I'm going to uh, just say thank you and, and look forward to the next conversation. All right, I'm trying to figure out. Thank you, Tiffany. Um, you know, th this is such a random, like I literally go on Twitter. Anybody got any questions? DM me. I don't know who's going to pop in. The, the the spiritual connection can't even make this up. So let me thank you. Right, thank you. Plus you up there in Newark, talk about that Muslim history. Oh my goodness. Thank you, Tiffany. I appreciate that. Um that's why also, that's why which y'all got mad at. I mean, I shouldn't got mad at you. Don't let's not go down that rabbit. Do not do that. Let's not do let's not, no, do, let's that. not do that. I'm saying everybody um, in everybody in Newark knew anyway. And I listen, I know it feels very intimate that you're only talking to Tiffany. Oh, right. So, so I'm going to have to add, we're going to have to try to figure out, uh, please, please do not bombard uh, Dr. Carr with uh, emails. Please do not do that. Please, oh, please, right. please. I'm going to ask you not to do it. I tried to pop in. I'm like, you, we could do this off mic. We, you know, but it just speaks to the authenticity and how oh. natural this space is that you just, you know, but That's don't true. do that. Don't do that. that. I should have done no. that. Right. Yeah. Y'all please don't be like, right. You ain't got the time. Right. I already know. I already know how that's going to turn out. All right. Oh, let's, have mercy. <laughs> we're going to try to figure out how to mute that. Okay. All right. Let's welcome in Mr. Carl. Carl is from Virginia. Carl is uh, from Virginia by way of, let me see, where is he from? From by way of North Carolina, oh. born in North Carolina. Welcome to In Class with Dr. Gray Carr. Hey, brother. What's going doing? on, Carl? Awesome. All right. Doing well. Oh wow! You got this. Really? this is working perfectly. What part of North Carolina, bro? And Virginia. Um, I, I'm from. I was born in Thomasville, North Carolina. It's it's a small town right outside of like High Point, Greensboro area. Why do I know that name? Furniture is what we most named. There you go. Well, everybody yeah. down there doing moving that moving that yeah. furniture, man. But yeah, Thomasville. But it seemed like I don't know. Uh, what was a uh, uh, Willie Willie Aiken played for the Royals? Was he from High Point? Anyway, I'm just trying to think of some oh, okay. for some okay. reason in my mind. Yeah, but speaking of athletes, we did have somebody from Thomasville who played for the Minnesota Vikings in the seventies, part of Purple People Eaters, Purple People Eaters. But I can't Not think. Carl of Eller. Yeah. Carl. Yes, sir. His, his family is is from Thomasville. Oh, Carl Eller. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I'm from from Thomas. Thomas. Uh, yeah. No yeah. What part yeah. of Virginia are you from, man? I mean, so I right? live in I live in Northern Virginia in uh, Lorton, right outside of Woodbridge. Okay, uh, so Virginia. DMV. We yeah. the same. We in the area. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> What's going yeah. on, brother Carl? No, much. I had, I had a question about um, you. You often say that, or make the clarification that you are a citizen of the world, not just you, not just the United States. I ain't got and, one passport, um, unfortunately. So the law. Yeah. Has something else to say. <laughs> right, and and I just appreciate all the breadcrumbs that you've been given over, you know, over this all this time. And one thing, you know, for example, you mentioned at one time how uh, Dr. King was at the inauguration of of, of uh, Kwame Nkrumah. Before. Oh, no question. Um, and I have some other examples how um, I'm taking a, a class now and we have this big deep dive into CLR James and Ooh. like Jackman's and all that. But Ooh. one thing that I noticed was when, when you talk about how we should think globally, when I was writing some of my papers, I realized that 
as far as like my professor, they kind of limited CLR James to just the West Indies, just to, just to England, just to Africa. But he also spent time in the United States too. Yeah, and he he was also knee deep in some of the labor movements that you mentioned earlier. No question. Um, at the same time that you know, like um, Paul Robeson had his newsletter, Freedom. Yeah, so you know, for example, you know, I was just shocked to see how in one of the 1952 issues they featured somebody from Thomasville, where I'm from. He was part of the labor union down there. This all. So just that example of just thinking globally how people that these notable figures that we read, we kind of pigeonhole them, but they always had this global way of thinking. So one last example is uh one last example how we also talked about the first Asian African conference 1955 in uh in Bandung how but when I looked in the background of that I saw that Richard Wright was there. Richard so Wright brother yeah I'm like you know so there's there was always this global presence with these people that we kind of pigeonhole as being limited as just being nationalists, you know, within the United States. So I say all that to say, my question is trying to channel that, just like the question before, how can we channel that global thinking and the reframing, how we read these noble figures, these notable figures? They all had a, a globalist kind of mindset. How can we adopt that same mindset, looking at how fragile the Republic is, all that information you gave us before? how fragile it is, how can we start thinking more globally to kind of give us that kind of undergirding support of our global black brothers and sisters and not just uh, limited to the United States and, and what we're doing right now. And I hope all that made sense. But No, it made perfect sense, Carl. And first of all, you know, I understand, you know, we're talking about question and answer, but I think that our conversations are very much organic. We're learning, uh, from each other as we're having dialogue and what you've laid out i think for everyone who is listening to this conversation is a blueprint for how we begin to do that so that i mean first of all for people who understand you know we, we've mentioned a couple of times freedom ways magazine which comes into existence late 50s early 60s but it was preceded by as you say paul robeson had a newspaper freedom newspaper and the fact that you were actually reading copies of freedom newspaper short-lived newspaper uh that speak it, it really speaks to the fact that us us recognizing international linkages returns to what we've always done and so you know part of it starts with study so something i mean that's very powerful and starts with recognizing how uh poor folk working class folk have often connected internationally and our people have always been international people so i'm an american not if you go back a number of generations and maybe not even many generations so for example you like see you mentioned north carolina and you talk about you know the fact that labor plays a central role as you know better than i do in fact on a lot of what becomes the civil rights movement becomes the black power movement i mean going back to the original SNCC, right southern negro youth conference congress in the 1930s and 40s I mean, you see that movement. And so I think it starts with recognizing by studying and seeing those connections as they were lived out and then looking up from the study and seeing how those connections take place today. We typically don't think about those connections much when we think of culture. Kids watching Black is King, they see these Pan-African connections. People think about the fact that, you know, if you're in an urban area, you go get 
your jollof rice and you go get your patties and then so the food and the culture the music's already co-mingled it's the politics that have become less mingled and a lot of it has to do with this constant bombardment in american popular culture of this fictitious nationalism our people have always sought each other out let me ask you a quick question carl i'm thinking about it because you mentioned james and of course the time he spent uh here um, I don't know if you picked up a copy. You probably already read it. Mariners, Renegades, and Castaways. The book. No, I that that's the book that he wrote. Uh, he, he uses Moby Dick because you know the guy was a Europhile, as you know, man. Mm -hmm. Coming out of Trinidad, he got the best education. Why you know what I'm saying? But uh, you know, he had him for a minute. They had him detained over on Ellis Island. Same kind of thing they tried to run Claudia Jones through, right? Before they threw her out of the country. And he writes this kind of gloss on Herman Melville and Moby Dick, but he's writing it as a kind of solidarity statement about the nature of international movements. And of course, you know, last week when the sister from Detroit was on, we talking about Grace Lee Boggs and Jimmy Boggs. We know C.R. James flows through there. He was at Howard. He came and taught at Federal City College in, in D.C. and then at Howard for a minute. It's all right there. But I'm wondering, Carl, you know, had you begun to explore this before you took this class? or Because you, you're doing a deep dive, brother. No, no, no. I, I had not. And like I said, you know, these things have been introduced, but not to the extent that they would add these little nuggets that would add these connections, these international connections, like you said. Yeah. I see. Well, then, yeah. Let, I mean, I think that's really the answer: is that we 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 study the connections that preceded us, and then as we study, we look around for the connections that are existing here, and we figure out again, going back to what we some, what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation: to how do we see the patterns? How do we see the best practices? Because they will convince us that if you're not born in this country, somehow you're supposed to pick this country over everybody else. And that is utterly absurd. We've never made any progress that way. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a shelf. In fact, I'm going to make a note of that. Uh, Ken, we probably, Carl has brought up something. We're going to talk about black internationalism and the labor movement and radical, so-called radical thinking. Man, I appreciate you, Carl. This is good, brother. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, be safe, man. Yes, sir. Nice to meet you. Um, I, I'm so humbled by this family that you you and I have created here. Um, so many amazing people. I was thinking today, you know, again, cause it's so random. I'm like, follow me on Twitter, uh, <laughs> ask a question. People who pop in the from day one, from the, you know, the brothers and sisters traveling to Malcolm X's birthplace and traveling to Megra Evers' home and you know folks coming in with with their real real well thought out questions and just challenging us i you know this class is what, and information no i'm saying this class is Ooh. as much as you're teaching and i'm listening uh in many ways we're the students as well which is i think the circle that is complete which is that's why this makes so much sense that's the point here i'm glad you raised that because you know as we know we're both college professors and for our people We've often been taught that the path to get the group together is to go get the higher education. And that's an important path. But as you say, what's being revealed week by week as we continue to think through and move things around is that, you know what? One of my Jagnas from Mississippi, whose father moved them to St. Paul, Minnesota, in Zingarada Bisha Heru, who was for 20 years almost the president of the Association for the Study of Classical African Civilizations in Zinga. And Zinga used to say, you know, just because you know something don't mean what I know don't count. Because <laughs> she was always adamant to say, if you've been on this planet, you got some information. And this system, this, this society we live in often undervalues 
people's lived in what we're seeing week after week is this is truly a conversation because i mean just these two conversations we've had so far oh my god between tiffany and carl i got a, i got another two pages of uh, cards of notes i've been taking like damn oh yeah this is this is great and I just, um, SCOTUS, for those of you who don't know, is Supreme Court of the United States. Yes. So that blog, I'm going to drop the blog in the description. I'm going to take some time. I usually decompress, you know, afterwards. My, my yes. head is just like, ooh, about to explode. So I'll put the book, the book titles in as well. George, who's in, a, in the chat. That's what this is a collective, has been putting the books up on his oh, Twitter. Really? Yeah, George has definitely been. Maybe. Yeah, Brother George, uh, Tahir's daddy. I call them. Um, and so I just want, I want to thank, you know, I want to thank the collective because, you know, Renee from Switzerland comes in. Nobody's asked anybody to do this. Ahmad. Thank you. Uh, as well, coming in, doing things. Uh, I want to thank the team, Donica, because I didn't do, I, I rarely do that. And I forget. It's not because I don't love y'all. Kareem, Ayara, thank y'all for, you know, jumping in and being in the, in uh, moderating the comments and getting rid of the trolls. Appreciate that. I do this. <laughs> I, I do a little side duty of my eye because I got I'm like doing five things at once. I'm like, I, let me catch you in here with the nonsense. Let me I will gather you up out of here. Even if you subscribe, you will be blocked. I know that's right. Because banishment, as you said, oh, it's that's the worst punishment. The worst punishment. It's so the worst punishment. Yeah, we don't need uh, support like that. If you can't come in adding and edifying, this ain't the place for you. And I'm good with that. I appreciate all the thumbs up and, and the subscriptions. Spread this, share this. Those of you who are committed to this work, start start, start the ball rolling in your own community because this class is a model for all the other things. You know, we're talking about something specific, but there could be an in-class in jazz and in-class in, you know, astronomy. You know, there's like so many other things that people can be inspired to talk about in their circle. But make the just drop real bomb. I mean, tip. And she found that Anna Arnold Hedgeman, which we'll do. You know what, Karen? Let's just say we're gonna we're gonna do Anna Arnold next week. Okay. Some birthdays coming up. All I right. Dance with Williams, check out the joke. We will do some more. But they're, they're toward the end of the month. Anna All right. Arnold Hedgeman, we got it. We got it. We got you right here. We got we got we got to get her. But but that homeschool. I mean, the homeschool movement among Black people. Then connecting to the sister Clara Muhammad, who comes out of the Nation of Islam, and of course in the Nation, y'all know. I mean. The Claire Muhammad schools, their name for Claire Muhammad, the, the Nation of Islam school. I mean, just the, I mean, and then Carl, Carl went, listen, Freedom Newspaper. If he's reading Freedom Newspaper, that is, that's a kind of rare thing. Because these are black people who are organizing and, and, and it should not be in the purview of a handful of academics in the town. No, this, what we're doing every week, and Karen, I can't thank you enough because the pandemic kind of triggered this. But uh, we're not going back to the way it used to be. What we're demonstrating to each other is our people got everything we need to figure out what we need to do. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And on that note, I'll see you next week, brother. I thank you. I thank you. I love you immensely. Love you. I love everybody here. That's it.